Prologue. When the coronavirus pandemic hit in 2020, the United States, like many other countries, was unprepared. Despite warnings the previous year from public health experts about the risk of a global viral contagion, and even as China contended with its outbreak in January, the United States lacked the ability to conduct the widespread testing that might have contained the disease. As the contagion spread, the wealthiest country in the world found itself unable to provide even the medical masks and other protective gear that doctors and nurses needed to treat the flood of infected patients. Hospitals and state governments found themselves bidding against one another to acquire testing kits and life-saving ventilators. This lack of preparedness had multiple sources. President Donald Trump, ignoring the warnings of public health advisors, downplayed the crisis for several crucial weeks, insisting in late February, we have it very much under control. We have done an incredible job. It's going to disappear. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention at first distributed flawed test kits and was slow to find a fix. And decades of outsourcing by American companies had left the United States almost entirely dependent on China and other foreign manufacturers for surgical masks and medical gear. But beyond its lack of logistical preparedness, the country was not morally prepared for the pandemic. The years leading up to the crisis were a time of deep divisions, economic, cultural, political. Decades of rising inequality and cultural resentment had brought an angry populist backlash in 2016. This resulted in the election of Trump, who shortly after having been impeached but not removed from office, found himself presiding over the gravest crisis the country had faced since the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. The partisan divide persisted as the crisis unfolded. Few Republicans, only 29%, trusted the news media to provide reliable information on coronavirus. Few Democrats, only 19%, trusted the information Trump provided. Amid the partisan rancor and mistrust came a plague that demanded the kind of solidarity few societies can summon, except in times of war. People throughout the world were implored and, in many cases, required to observe social distancing, to abandon work and stay at home. Those unable to work remotely faced lost wages and disappearing jobs. The virus posed the greatest threat to those of advanced age, but could also infect the young. And even those who could ride it out had parents and grandparents to worry about. Morally, the pandemic reminded us of our vulnerability, of our mutual dependence. We are all in this together. Public officials and advertisers reached instinctively for this slogan. But the solidarity it evoked was a solidarity of fear, a fear of contagion that demanded social distancing. 
public health required that we express our solidarity, our shared vulnerability, by keeping our distance, by observing the strictures of self-isolation. The coincidence of solidarity and separation made sense in the context of a pandemic. Apart from the heroic healthcare providers and first responders, whose help for the afflicted required their physical presence, and the cashiers in grocery stores and the delivery workers who risked their health bringing food and supplies to those sheltering at home, most of us were told that the best way to protect others was by keeping our distance from them. But the moral paradox of solidarity through separation highlighted a certain hollowness in the assurance that we are all in this together. It did not describe a sense of community embodied in an ongoing practice of mutual obligation and shared sacrifice. To the contrary, it appeared on the scene at a time of nearly unprecedented inequality and partisan rancor. The same market-driven globalization project that had left the United States without access to the domestic production of surgical masks and medications had deprived a great many working people of well-paying jobs and social esteem. Meanwhile, those who reaped the economic bounty of global markets, supply chains, and capital flows had come to rely less and less on their fellow citizens. As producers and as consumers, their economic prospects and identities were no longer dependent on local or national communities. As the winners of globalization pulled away from the losers, they practiced their own kind of social distancing. The political divide that mattered, the winners explained, was no longer left versus right, but open versus closed. In an open world, success depends on education, on equipping yourself to compete and win in a global economy. This means that national governments must ensure that everyone has an equal chance to get the education on which success depends. But it also means that those who land on top come to believe that they deserve their success. And if opportunities are truly equal, it means that those who are left behind deserve their fate as well. This way of thinking about success makes it hard to believe that we are all in this together. It invites the winners to consider their success their own doing and the losers to feel that those on top look down with disdain. It helps explain why those left behind by globalization would become angry and resentful, and why they would be drawn to authoritarian populists who rail against elites and promise to reassert national borders with a vengeance. Now, it is these political figures wary though they are of scientific expertise and global cooperation, who must contend with the pandemic. It will not be easy. Mobilizing to confront 
the global public health crisis we face requires not only medical and scientific expertise, but also moral and political renewal. The toxic mix of hubris and resentment that propelled Trump to power is not a likely source of the solidarity we need now. Any hope of renewing our moral and civic life depends on understanding how, over the past four decades, our social bonds and respect for one another have come unraveled. This book seeks to explain how this happened and to consider how we might find our way to a politics of the common good. June 2020, Brookline, Massachusetts. Introduction, Getting In. In March 2019, as high school students awaited the results of their college applications, federal prosecutors made a stunning announcement. They charged 33 wealthy parents with engaging in an elaborate cheating scheme to get their children admitted to elite universities, including Yale, Stanford, Georgetown, and the University of Southern California. At the heart of the scam was an unscrupulous college counseling consultant named William Singer, who ran a business that catered to anxious, affluent parents. Singer's company specialized in gaming the intensely competitive college admission system that had in recent decades become the primary gateway to prosperity and prestige. For students lacking the stellar academic credentials top colleges required, Singer devised corrupt workarounds. Paying proctors of standardized tests such as the SAT and ACT to boost students' scores by correcting their answer sheets, and bribing coaches to designate applicants as recruited athletes, even if the students did not play the sport. He even provided fake athletic credentials, photoshopping applicants' faces onto action photos of real athletes. Singer's illicit admission service did not come cheap, the chairman of a prestigious law firm paid $75,000 for his daughter to take a college entrance exam at a test center supervised by a proctor paid by Singer to ensure the student received the score she needed. One family paid Singer $1.2 million to get their daughter admitted to Yale as a soccer recruit, despite the fact that she did not play soccer. Singer used $400,000 of the payment to bribe the obliging Yale soccer coach, who was also indicted. A television actress and her husband, a fashion designer, paid Singer $500,000 to get their two daughters admitted to USC as bogus recruits to the crew team. Another celebrity, the actress Felicity Huffman, known for her role in the television series Desperate Housewives, somehow got a bargain rate. For only $15,000, Singer put in the fix for her daughter's SAT. In all, 
Singer took in $25 million over eight years running his college admissions scam. The admissions scandal provoked universal outrage in a polarized time when Americans could scarcely agree on anything. It drew massive coverage and condemnation across the political spectrum on Fox News and MSNBC, in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Everyone agreed that bribing and cheating to gain admission to elite colleges was reprehensible. But the outrage expressed something deeper than anger at privileged parents using illicit means to help their kids get into prestigious colleges in ways that people struggled to articulate. It was an emblematic scandal, one that raised larger questions about who gets ahead and why. Inevitably, the expressions of outrage were politically inflected. Surrogates for President Trump took to Twitter and Fox News to taunt the Hollywood liberals ensnared in the scam. Look at who these people are, Laura Trump, the president's daughter-in-law, said on Fox. The Hollywood elites, the liberal elites who were always talking about equality for all and everyone should get a fair shot, when here is the biggest hypocrisy of all, she said, that they're writing checks to cheat and get their kids into these schools when the spots really should have gone to kids that were actually deserving of them. For their part, liberals agreed that the scam deprived qualified kids of the places they deserved. But they saw the scandal as a blatant instance of a more pervasive injustice. The role of wealth and privilege in college admission, even where no illegality was involved. In announcing the indictment, the U.S. attorney declared what he took to be the principle at stake. There can be no separate college admissions system for the wealthy, he said. But editorial and opinion writers were quick to point out that money routinely plays a role in college admissions, most explicitly in the special consideration many American universities accord children of alumni and generous donors. Responding to Trump's supporters' attempts to blame liberal elites for the admission scandal, liberals cited published reports that Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, had been admitted to Harvard despite a modest academic record after his father, a wealthy real estate developer, had donated $2.5 million to the university. Trump himself reportedly gave $1.5 million to the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania around the time his children, Donald Jr. and Ivanka, attended the school. The Ethics of Admission Singer, the mastermind of the admission scam, acknowledged that a big gift sometimes gets marginally qualified applicants admitted through the back door. But he pitched his own technique, which he called the side door, as a cost-effective alternative. He told clients that the standard backdoor approach was 10 times as much money as his cheating scheme, 
and less certain. A major gift to the college offered no guarantee of admission, while his side door of bribes and fake test scores did. My families want a guarantee, he explained. Although money buys access in both backdoor and side door admissions, these modes of entry are not morally identical. For one thing, the backdoor is legal while the side door is not. The U.S. attorney made this clear. We are not talking about donating a building so that a school is more likely to take your son or daughter, he said. We are talking about deception and fraud, fake test scores, fake athletic credentials, fake photographs, bribed college officials. In prosecuting Singer, his clients, and the bribe-taking coaches, the feds were not telling colleges they could not sell seats in the freshman class. They were simply cracking down on a fraudulent scheme. Legality aside, the back door and the side door differ in this respect. When parents buy their child's admission through a big donation, the money goes to the college, which can use it to improve the education it offers all students. With Singer's scheme, the money goes to third parties, and so does little or nothing to help the college itself. At least one of the coaches Singer bribed, the sailing coach at Stanford, apparently used the bribe to support the sailing program. Others pocketed the money. From the standpoint of fairness, however, it is hard to distinguish between the back door and the side door. Both give an edge to children of wealthy parents who are admitted instead of better qualified applicants. Both allow money to override merit. Admission based on merit defines entry through the front door. As Singer put it, the front door means you get in on your own. This mode of entry is what most people consider fair. Applicants should be admitted based on their own merit, not their parents' money. In practice, of course, it is not that simple. Money hovers over the front door as well as the back. Measures of merit are hard to disentangle from economic advantage. Standardized tests such as the SAT purport to measure merit on its own so that students from modest backgrounds can demonstrate intellectual promise. In practice, however, SAT scores closely track family income. The richer a student's family, the higher the score he or she is likely to receive. Not only do wealthy parents enroll their children in SAT prep courses, they hire private admissions counselors to burnish their college applications, enroll them in dance and music lessons, and train them in elite sports such as fencing, squash, golf, tennis, crew, lacrosse, and sailing, the better to qualify for recruitment to college teams. These are among the costly means by which affluent, striving parents equip their progeny to compete for admission. And then there is tuition. At all but a handful of colleges, wealthy enough to admit students without regard for their ability to pay, 
Those who do not need financial aid are more likely than their needy counterparts to get in. Given all this, it is not surprising that more than two-thirds of students at Ivy League schools come from the top 20% of the income scale. At Princeton and Yale, more students come from the top 1% than from the entire bottom 60% of the country. This staggering inequality of access is due partly to legacy admissions and donor appreciation, the back door, but also to advantages that propel children from well-off families through the front door. Critics point to this inequality as evidence that higher education is not the meritocracy it claims to be. From this point of view, the college admissions scandal is an egregious instance of the broader pervasive unfairness that prevents higher education from living up to the meritocratic principle it professes. Despite their disagreements, those who consider the cheating scandal a shocking departure from standard admissions practices, and those who consider it an extreme example of tendencies already prevalent in college admissions, share a common premise. Students should be admitted to college based on their own abilities and talents, not based on factors beyond their control. They agree, in other words, that admission should be based on merit. They also agree, implicitly at least, that those who get in based on merit have earned their admission and therefore deserve the benefits that flow from it. If this familiar view is right, then the problem with meritocracy is not with the principle, but with our failure to live up to it. Political argument between conservatives and liberals bears this out. Our public debates are not about meritocracy itself, but about how to achieve it. Conservatives argue, for example, that affirmative action policies that consider race and ethnicity as factors in admission amount to a betrayal of merit-based admission. Liberals defend affirmative action as a way of remedying persisting unfairness and argue that a true meritocracy can only be achieved by leveling the playing field between the privileged and the disadvantaged. But this debate overlooks the possibility that the problem with meritocracy runs deeper. Consider again the admission scandal. Most of the outrage focused on the cheating and the unfairness of it. Equally troubling, however, are the attitudes that fueled the cheating. Lying in the background of the scandal was the assumption, now so familiar that it is scarcely noticed, that admission to an elite university is a highly sought prize. The scandal was attention-grabbing, not only because it implicated celebrities and private equity moguls, but also because the access they tried to buy was so widely desired, the object of fevered striving. 
Why is this so? Why has admission to prestigious universities become so fiercely sought that privileged parents commit fraud to get their kids in? Or, short of fraud, spend tens of thousands of dollars on private admissions consultants and test prep courses to boost their children's chances, turning their high school years into a stress-strewn gauntlet of AP classes, resume building, and pressure-packed striving. Why has admission to elite colleges come to loom so large in our society that the FBI would devote massive law enforcement resources to ferreting out the scam, and that news of the scandal would command headlines and public attention for months, from the indictment to the sentencing of the perpetrators. The admissions obsession has its origins in the growing inequality of recent decades. It reflects the fact that more is at stake in who gets in where. As the wealthiest 10% pulled away from the rest, the stakes of attending a prestigious college increased. 50 years ago, applying to college was less fraught. Fewer than one in five Americans went to a four-year college, and those who did tended to enroll in places close to home. College rankings mattered less than they do today. But as inequality increased, and as the earnings gap between those with and those without a college degree widened, college mattered more. So did college choice. Today, students commonly seek out the most selective college that will admit them. Parenting styles have also changed, especially among the professional classes. As the income gap grows, so does the fear of falling. Seeking to avert this danger, parents became intensely involved with their children's lives, managing their time, monitoring their grades, directing their activities, curating their college qualifications. This epidemic of overbearing helicopter parenting did not come from nowhere. It is an anxious but understandable response to rising inequality and the desire of affluent parents to spare their progeny the precarity of middle-class life. A degree from a name-brand university has come to be seen as the primary vehicle of upward mobility for those seeking to rise and the surest bulwark against downward mobility for those hoping to remain ensconced in the comfortable classes. This is the mentality that led panicky, privileged parents to sign up for the college admissions scam. But economic anxiety is not the whole story. More than a hedge against downward mobility, Singer's clients were buying something else something less tangible, but more valuable. In securing a place for their kids in prestigious universities, they were buying the borrowed luster of merit. Bidding for merit. 
In an unequal society, those who land on top want to believe their success is morally justified. In a meritocratic society, this means the winners must believe they have earned their success through their own talent and hard work. Paradoxically, this is the gift the cheating parents wanted to give their kids. If all they really cared about was enabling their children to live in affluence, they could have given them trust funds. But they wanted something else, the meritocratic cachet that admission to elite colleges confers. Singer understood this when he explained that the front door means you get in on your own. His cheating scheme was the next best thing. Of course, being admitted on the basis of a rigged SAT or phony athletic credentials is not making it on your own. This is why most of the parents hid their machinations from their kids. Admission through the side door carries the same meritocratic honor as admission through the front door, only if the illicit mode of entry is concealed. No one takes pride in announcing, I've been admitted to Stanford because my parents bribed the sailing coach. The contrast with admission based on merit seems obvious. Those admitted with sparkling legitimate credentials take pride in their achievement and consider that they got in on their own. But this is, in a way, misleading. While it is true that their admission reflects dedication and hard work, it cannot really be said that it is solely their own doing. What about the parents and teachers who helped them on their way? What about talents and gifts, not wholly of their making? What about the good fortune to live in a society that cultivates and rewards the talents they happen to have? Those who, by dint of effort and talent, prevail in a competitive meritocracy are indebted in ways the competition obscures. As the meritocracy intensifies, the striving so absorbs us that our indebtedness recedes from view. In this way, even a fair meritocracy, one without cheating or bribery or special privileges for the wealthy, induces a mistaken impression that we have made it on our own. The years of strenuous effort demanded of applicants to elite universities almost forces them to believe that their success is their own doing and that if they fall short, they have no one to blame but themselves. This is a heavy burden for young people to bear. It is also corrosive of civic sensibilities. For the more we think of ourselves as self-made and self-sufficient, the harder it is to learn gratitude and humility. And without these sentiments, it is hard to care for the common good. College admission is not the only occasion for arguments about merit. Debates about who deserves what abound in contemporary politics. On the surface, 
These debates are about fairness. Does everyone have a truly equal opportunity to compete for desirable goods and social positions? But our disagreements about merit are not only about fairness. They are also about how we define success and failure, winning and losing, and about the attitudes the winners should hold toward those less successful than themselves. These are highly charged questions, and we try to avoid them until they force themselves upon us. Finding our way beyond the polarized politics of our time requires a reckoning with merit. How has the meaning of merit been recast in recent decades in ways that erode the dignity of work and leave many people feeling that elites look down on them? Are the winners of globalization justified in the belief that they have earned and therefore deserve their success? Or is this a matter of meritocratic hubris? At a time when anger against elites has brought democracy to the brink, the question of merit takes on a special urgency. We need to ask whether the solution to our fractious politics is to live more faithfully by the principle of merit or to seek a common good beyond the sorting and the striving. One, winners and losers. These are dangerous times for democracy. The danger can be seen in rising xenophobia and growing public support for autocratic figures who test the limits of democratic norms. These trends are troubling in themselves. Equally alarming is the fact that the mainstream parties and politicians display little understanding of the discontent that is roiling politics around the world. Some denounce the upsurge of populist nationalism as little more than a racist, xenophobic reaction against immigrants and multiculturalism. Others see it mainly in economic terms, as a protest against job losses brought about by global trade and new technologies. But it is a mistake to see only the bigotry in populist protest or to view it only as an economic complaint. Like the triumph of Brexit in the United Kingdom, the election of Donald Trump in 2016 was an angry verdict on decades of rising inequality and a version of globalization that benefits those at the top but leaves ordinary citizens feeling disempowered. It was also a rebuke for a technocratic approach to politics that is tone deaf to the resentments of people who feel the economy and the culture have left them behind. The hard reality is that Trump was elected by tapping a wellspring of anxieties, frustrations, and legitimate grievances to which the mainstream parties had no compelling answer. A similar predicament afflicts European democracies, 
Before they can hope to win back public support, these parties must rethink their mission and purpose. To do so, they should learn from the populist protest that has displaced them, not by replicating its xenophobia and strident nationalism, but by taking seriously the legitimate grievances with which these ugly sentiments are entangled. Such thinking should begin with the recognition that these grievances are not only economic, but also moral and cultural. They are not only about wages and jobs, but also about social esteem. The mainstream parties and governing elites who find themselves the target of populist protest struggle to make sense of it. They typically diagnose the discontent in one of two ways, as animus against immigrants and racial and ethnic minorities, or as anxiety in the face of globalization and technological change. Both diagnoses miss something important. Diagnosing populist discontent. The first diagnosis sees populist anger against elites mainly as a backlash against growing racial, ethnic, and gender diversity. Accustomed to dominating the social hierarchy, the white male working class voters who supported Trump feel threatened by the prospect of becoming a minority within their country, strangers in their own land. They feel that they, more than women or racial minorities, are the victims of discrimination, and they feel oppressed by the demands of politically correct public discourse. This diagnosis of injured social status highlights the ugly features of populist sentiment. The nativism, misogyny, and racism voiced by Trump and other nationalistic populists. The second diagnosis attributes working-class resentment to bewilderment and dislocation wrought by the rapid pace of change in an age of globalization and technology. In the new economic order, the notion of work tied to a lifelong career is over. What matters now are innovation, flexibility, entrepreneurialism, and a constant willingness to learn new skills. But, according to this account, many workers bridle at the demand to reinvent themselves as the jobs they once held are outsourced to low-wage countries or assigned to robots. They hanker, as if nostalgically, for the stable communities and careers of the past, feeling dislocated in the face of the inexorable forces of globalization and technology, such workers lash out against immigrants free trade and governing elites, but their fury is misdirected, according to this account, for they fail to realize that they are railing against forces as unalterable as the weather. Their anxieties are best addressed by job training programs and other measures to help them adapt to the imperatives of global and technological change. Each of these diagnoses contains an element of truth. 
But neither gives populism its due. Construing populist protest as either malevolent or misdirected absolves governing elites of responsibility for creating the conditions that have eroded the dignity of work and left many feeling disrespected and disempowered. The diminished economic and cultural status of working people in recent decades is not the result of inexorable forces. It is the result of the way mainstream political parties and elites have governed. Those elites are now alarmed, and rightly so, at the threat to democratic norms posed by Trump and other populist-backed autocrats. But they fail to acknowledge their role in prompting the resentment that led to the populist backlash. They do not see that the upheavals we are witnessing are a political response to a political failure of historic proportions. Technocracy and Market-Friendly Globalization At the heart of this failure is the way mainstream parties conceived and carried out the project of globalization over the past four decades. Two aspects of this project gave rise to the conditions that fuel populist protest. One is its technocratic way of conceiving the public good. The other is its meritocratic way of defining winners and losers. The technocratic conception of politics is bound up with a faith in markets, not necessarily unfettered laissez-faire capitalism, but the broader belief that market mechanisms are the primary instruments for achieving the public good. This way of thinking about politics is technocratic in the sense that it drains public discourse of substantive moral argument and treats ideologically contestable questions as if they were matters of economic efficiency, the province of experts. It is not difficult to see how the technocratic faith in markets set the stage for populist discontent. The market-driven version of globalization brought growing inequality. It also devalued national identities and allegiances. As goods and capital flowed freely across national borders, those who stood astride the global economy valorized cosmopolitan identities as a progressive, enlightened alternative to the narrow parochial ways of protectionism, tribalism, and conflict. The real political divide, they argued, was no longer left versus right, but open versus closed. This implied that critics of outsourcing, free trade agreements, and unrestricted capital flows were close-minded rather than open-minded, tribal rather than global. Meanwhile, the technocratic approach to governance treated many public questions as matters of technical expertise beyond the reach of ordinary citizens. This narrowed the scope of democratic argument. 
hollowed out the terms of public discourse and produced a growing sense of disempowerment. The market-friendly technocratic conception of globalization was embraced by mainstream parties of the left and the right, but it was the embrace of market thinking and market values by center-left parties that proved most consequential for the globalization project itself and for the populist protest that followed. By the time of Trump's election, the Democratic Party had become a party of technocratic liberalism more congenial to the professional classes than to the blue-collar and middle-class voters who once constituted its base. The same was true of Britain's Labour Party at the time of Brexit and the Social Democratic Parties of Europe. This transformation had its origins in the 1980s. Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher had argued that government was the problem and that markets were the solution. When they passed from the political scene, the center-left politicians who succeeded them, Bill Clinton in the U.S., Tony Blair in Britain, Gerhard Schroeder in Germany, they moderated but consolidated the market faith. They softened the harsh edges of unfettered markets, but did not challenge the central premise of the Reagan-Thatcher era, that market mechanisms are the primary instruments for achieving the public good. In line with this faith, they embraced a market-friendly version of globalization and welcomed the growing financialization of the economy. In the 1990s, the Clinton administration joined with Republicans in promoting global trade agreements and deregulating the financial industry. The benefits of these policies flowed mostly to those at the top, but Democrats did little to address the deepening inequality and the growing power of money in politics. Having strayed from its traditional mission of taming capitalism and holding economic power to democratic account, liberalism lost its capacity to inspire. All that seemed to change when Barack Obama appeared on the political scene. In his 2008 presidential campaign, he offered a stirring alternative to the managerial technocratic language that had come to characterize liberal public discourse. He showed that progressive politics could speak a language of moral and spiritual purpose. But the moral energy and civic idealism he inspired as a candidate did not carry over into his presidency. Assuming office in the midst of the financial crisis, he appointed economic advisors who had promoted financial deregulation during the Clinton years. With their encouragement, he bailed out the banks on terms that did not hold them to account for the behavior that led to the crisis and offered little help for those who had lost their homes. His moral voice muted. Obama placated rather than articulated the seething public anger toward Wall Street. Lingering anger over the bailout cast a shadow over the Obama presidency and ultimately 
fueled a mood of populist protest that reached across the political spectrum. On the left, the Occupy movement and the candidacy of Bernie Sanders. On the right, the Tea Party movement and the election of Trump. The populist uprising in the United States, Great Britain, and Europe is a backlash directed generally against elites, but its most conspicuous casualties have been liberal and center-left political parties. The Democratic Party in the U.S., the Labour Party in Britain, the Social Democratic Party in Germany, whose share of the vote reached a historic low in the 2017 federal election, Italy's Democratic Party, whose vote share dropped to less than 20%, the Socialist Party in France, whose presidential nominee won only 6% of the vote in the first round of the 2017 election. Before they can hope to win back public support, these parties need to reconsider their market-oriented, technocratic approach to governing. They also need to rethink something subtler, but no less consequential, the attitudes towards success and failure that have accompanied the growing inequality of recent decades. They need to ask why those who have not flourished in the new economy feel that the winners look down with disdain. The Rhetoric of Rising What then has incited the resentment against elites felt by many working-class and middle-class voters? The answer begins with the rising inequality of recent decades, but does not end there. It has ultimately to do with the changing terms of social recognition and esteem. The age of globalization has bestowed its rewards unevenly, to say the least. In the United States, most of the nation's income gains since the late 1970s have gone to the top 10%, while the bottom half received virtually none. In real terms, the median income for working-age men, about $36,000, is less than it was four decades ago. Today, the richest 1% of Americans make more than the bottom half combined. But even this explosion of inequality is not the primary source of populist anger. Americans have long tolerated inequalities of income and wealth, believing that whatever one's starting point in life it is possible to rise from rags to riches. This faith in the possibility of upward mobility is at the heart of the American dream. In line with this faith, mainstream parties and politicians have responded to growing inequality by calling for greater equality of opportunity, retraining workers whose jobs have disappeared due to globalization and technology, improving access to higher education, removing barriers of race, ethnicity, and gender. This rhetoric of opportunity is summed up in the slogan that those who work hard and play by the rules should be able to rise as far as their talents will take them. In recent years, 
Politicians of both parties have reiterated this slogan to the point of incantation. Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, and Marco Rubio among Republicans. Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton among Democrats. All invoked it. Obama was fond of a variation of this theme drawn from a pop song, You Can Make It If You Try. During his presidency, he used this line in speeches and public statements more than 140 times. But the rhetoric of rising now rings hollow. In today's economy, it is not easy to rise. Americans born to poor parents tend to stay poor as adults. Of those born in the bottom fifth of the income scale, only about one in 20 will make it to the top fifth. Most will not even rise to the middle class. It is easier to rise from poverty in Canada or Germany, Denmark, and other European countries than it is in the United States. This is at odds with the long-standing faith that mobility is America's answer to inequality. The United States, we tell ourselves, can afford to worry less about inequality than the class-bound societies of Europe because here it is possible to rise. Seventy percent of Americans believe the poor can make it out of poverty on their own, while only 35% of Europeans think so. This faith in mobility may explain why the U.S. has a less generous welfare state than most major European countries. But today, the countries with the highest mobility tend to be those with the greatest equality. The ability to rise, it seems, depends less on the spur of poverty than on access to education, health care, and other resources that equip people to succeed in the world of work. The explosion of inequality in recent decades has not quickened upward mobility, but to the contrary, has enabled those on top to consolidate their advantages and pass them on to their children. Over the past half century, Elite colleges and universities dismantled barriers of race, religion, gender, and ethnicity that once restricted admission to the sons of the privileged. The Scholastic Aptitude Test, the SAT, was born of the promise to admit students based on academic merit rather than class and family pedigree. But today's meritocracy has hardened into a hereditary aristocracy. Two-thirds of the students at Harvard and Stanford come from the top fifth of the income scale. Despite generous financial aid policies, fewer than 4% of Ivy League students come from the bottom fifth. At Harvard and other Ivy League colleges, there are more students from families in the top 1%, an income of more than $630,000 per year, than there are students from all the families in the bottom half of the income distribution combined. The American faith that with hard work and talent, anyone can rise, 
no longer fits the facts on the ground. This may explain why the rhetoric of opportunity fails to inspire as it once did. Mobility can no longer compensate for inequality. Any serious response to the gap between rich and poor must reckon directly with inequalities of power and wealth rather than rest content with the project of helping people scramble up a ladder whose rungs grow further and further apart. The Meritocratic Ethic The problem with meritocracy is not only that the practice falls short of the ideal. If that were the problem, the solution would consist in perfecting equality of opportunity, in seeking a society in which people could, whatever their starting point in life, truly rise as far as their efforts and talents would take them. But it is doubtful that even a perfect meritocracy would be satisfying, either morally or politically. Morally, it is unclear why the talented deserve the outsized rewards that market-driven societies lavish on the successful. Central to the case for the meritocratic ethic is the idea that we do not deserve to be rewarded or held back based on factors beyond our control. But is having or lacking certain talents really our own doing? If not, it's hard to see why those who rise thanks to their talents deserve greater rewards than those who may be equally hardworking but less endowed with the gifts a market society happens to prize. Those who celebrate the meritocratic ideal and make it the center of their political project overlook this moral question. They also ignore something more politically potent, the morally unattractive attitudes the meritocratic ethic promotes among the winners and also among the losers. Among the winners, it generates hubris. Among the losers, humiliation and resentment. These moral sentiments are at the heart of the populist uprising against elites, more than a protest against immigrants and outsourcing. The populist complaint is about the tyranny of merit, and the complaint is justified. The relentless emphasis on creating a fair meritocracy in which social positions reflect effort and talent has a corrosive effect on the way we interpret our success or the lack of it. The notion that the system rewards talent and hard work encourages the winners to consider their success their own doing, a measure of their virtue, and to look down upon those less fortunate than themselves. Meritocratic hubris reflects the tendency of winners to inhale too deeply of their success, to forget the luck and good fortune that helped them on their way. It is the smug conviction of those who land on top that they deserve their fate and that those on the bottom deserve theirs too. This attitude is the moral companion of technocratic politics. A lively sense of the contingency of our lot 
conduces to a certain humility. There, but for the grace of God or the accident of fortune, go I. But a perfect meritocracy banishes all sense of gift or grace. It diminishes our capacity to see ourselves as sharing a common fate. It leaves little room for the solidarity that can arise when we reflect on the contingency of our talents and fortunes. This is what makes merit a kind of tyranny or unjust rule. The Politics of Humiliation Seen from below, the hubris of elites is galling. No one likes to be looked down upon. But the meritocratic faith adds insult to injury. The notion that your fate is in your hands, that you can make it if you try, is a double-edged sword, inspiring in one way, but invidious in another. It congratulates the winners, but denigrates the losers, even in their own eyes. For those who can't find work or make ends meet, it is hard to escape the demoralizing thought that their failure is their own doing that they simply lack the talent and drive to succeed. The politics of humiliation differs in this respect from the politics of injustice. Protest against injustice looks outward. It complains that the system is rigged, that the winners have cheated or manipulated their way to the top. Protest against humiliation is psychologically more freighted. It combines resentment of the winners with nagging self-doubt. Perhaps the rich are rich because they are more deserving than the poor. Maybe the losers are complicit in their misfortune after all. This feature of the politics of humiliation makes it more combustible than other political sentiments. It is a potent ingredient in the volatile brew of anger and resentment that fuels populist protest. Though himself a billionaire, Donald Trump understood and exploited this resentment. Unlike Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, who spoke constantly of opportunity, Trump scarcely mentioned the word. Instead, he offered blunt talk of winners and losers. Interestingly, Bernie Sanders, a social democratic populist, also rarely speaks of opportunity and mobility, focusing instead on inequalities of power and wealth. Elites have so valorized a college degree, both as an avenue for advancement and as the basis for social esteem, that they have difficulty understanding the hubris a meritocracy can generate and the harsh judgment it imposes on those who have not gone to college. Such attitudes are at the heart of the populist backlash and Trump's victory. One of the deepest political divides in American politics today is between those with and those without a college degree. In the 2016 election, Trump won two-thirds of white voters without a college degree, while Hillary Clinton won decisively among voters with advanced degrees. 
A similar divide appeared in Britain's Brexit referendum. Voters with no college education voted overwhelmingly for Brexit, while the vast majority of those with a postgraduate degree voted to remain. Reflecting on her presidential campaign a year and a half later, Hillary Clinton displayed the meritocratic hubris that contributed to her defeat. I won the places that represent two-thirds of America's gross domestic product, she told a conference in Mumbai, India in 2018. So I won the places that are optimistic, diverse, dynamic, moving forward. By contrast, Trump drew his support from those who, quote, didn't like black people getting rights and didn't like women getting jobs. She had won the votes of the winners of globalization, while Trump had won among the losers. The Democratic Party had once stood for farmers and working people against the privileged. Now, in a meritocratic age, its defeated standard bearer boasted that the prosperous, enlightened parts of the country had voted for her. Donald Trump was keenly alive to the politics of humiliation. From the standpoint of economic fairness, his populism was fake, a kind of plutocratic populism. He proposed a health plan that would have cut health care for many of his working class supporters and enacted a tax bill that heaped tax cuts on the wealthy. But to focus solely on the hypocrisy misses the point. When he withdrew the United States from the Paris Climate Change Agreement, Trump argued, implausibly, that he was doing so to protect American jobs. But the real point of his decision, its political rationale, was contained in this seemingly stray remark. At what point does America get demeaned, he said. At what point do they start laughing at us as a country? We don't want other leaders in other countries laughing at us anymore. Liberating the United States from the supposed burdens of the climate change agreement was not really about jobs or about global warming. It was, in Trump's political imagination, about averting humiliation. This resonated with Trump voters, even those who cared about climate change. Technocratic Merit and Moral Judgment Taken by itself, the notion that the meritorious should govern is not distinctive to our time. In ancient China, Confucius taught that those who excelled in virtue and ability should govern. In ancient Greece, Plato imagined a society led by a philosopher king, supported by a public-spirited class of guardians. Aristotle rejected Plato's philosopher king, but he too argued that the meritorious should have the greatest influence in public affairs. For him, the merit relevant to governing was not wealth or noble birth, but excellence in civic virtue and phronesis, by which he meant the practical wisdom to reason well about the common good. The founders of the American Republic called themselves men of merit and hoped virtuous, knowledgeable people like themselves would be elected to office. 
They opposed hereditary aristocracy, but were not keen on direct democracy, which they feared could bring demagogues to power. They sought to design institutions, such as the indirect election of the U.S. Senate and the president, that would enable the meritorious to govern. Thomas Jefferson favored a natural aristocracy based on virtue and talents, rather than an artificial aristocracy founded on wealth and birth. That form of government is the best, he wrote, which provides for a pure selection of these natural aristoi into the offices of government. Despite their differences, these traditional versions of political meritocracy, from the Confucian to the Platonic to the Republican, share the notion that the merits relevant to governing include moral and civic virtue. This is because all agreed that the common good consists, at least in part, in the moral education of citizens. Our technocratic version of meritocracy severs the link between merit and moral judgment. In the domain of the economy, it simply assumes that the common good is defined by GDP and that the value of people's contributions consists in the market value of the goods or services they sell. In the domain of government, it assumes that merit means technocratic expertise. This can be seen in the growing role of economists as policy advisors, the increasing reliance on market mechanisms to define and achieve the public good, and the failure of public discourse to address the large moral and civic questions that should be at the heart of political debate. This can be seen in the growing role of economists as policy advisors, the increasing reliance on market mechanisms to define and achieve the public good, and the failure of public discourse to address the large moral and civic questions that should be at the center of political debate. What should we do about rising inequality? What is the moral significance of national borders? What makes for the dignity of work? What do we owe one another as citizens? This morally blinkered way of conceiving merit and the public good has weakened democratic societies in several ways. The first is the most obvious. Over the past four decades, meritocratic elites have not governed very well. The elites who governed the United States from 1940 to 1980 were far more successful. They won World War II, helped rebuild Europe and Japan, strengthened the welfare state, dismantled segregation, and presided over four decades of economic growth that flowed to rich and poor alike. By contrast, the elites who have governed since have brought us four decades of stagnant wages for most workers, inequalities of income and wealth not seen since the 1920s, the Iraq War, a 19-year inconclusive war in Afghanistan, financial deregulation, the financial crisis of 2008, a decaying infrastructure, the highest incarceration rate in the world, and a system of campaign finance and gerrymandered congressional districts 
that makes a mockery of democracy. Not only has technocratic merit failed as a mode of governance, it has also narrowed the civic project. Today, the common good is understood mainly in economic terms. It is less about cultivating solidarity or deepening the bonds of citizenship than about satisfying consumer preferences as measured by the gross domestic product. This makes for an impoverished public discourse. What passes for political argument these days consists either of narrow managerial technocratic talk, which inspires no one, or else shouting matches in which partisans talk past one another without really listening. Citizens across the political spectrum find this empty public discourse frustrating and disempowering. They rightly sense that the absence of robust public debate does not mean that no policies are being decided. It simply means they are being decided elsewhere, out of public view, by administrative agencies, often captured by the industries they regulate, by central banks and bond markets, by corporate lobbyists whose campaign contributions buy influence with public officials. But that's not all. Beyond hollowing out public discourse, the reign of technocratic merit has reconfigured the terms of social recognition in ways that elevate the prestige of the credentialed professional classes and depreciate the contributions of most workers, eroding their social standing and esteem. It is this aspect of technocratic merit that contributes most directly to the angry, polarized politics of our time. The Populist Uprising Six decades ago, a British sociologist named Michael Young anticipated the hubris and resentment to which meritocracy gives rise. In fact, it was he who coined the term in a book called The Rise of the Meritocracy, 1958. He asked what would happen if one day class barriers were overcome so that everyone had a truly equal opportunity to rise based solely on his or her own merit. In one respect, this would be something to celebrate. The children of the working class would at last compete fairly, side by side with the children of the privileged. But it would not, Young thought, be an unmitigated triumph, for it was bound to foster hubris in the winners and humiliation among the losers. The winners would consider their success a, quote, just reward for their own capacity, for their own efforts, for their own undeniable achievement, and would therefore look down on those less successful than themselves. Those who failed to rise would feel they had no one to blame but themselves. For Young, meritocracy was not an ideal to aim at, but a recipe for social discord. He glimpsed decades ago the harsh meritocratic logic that now poisons our politics and animates populist anger. For those who feel aggrieved by the tyranny of merit, 
The problem is not only stagnant wages, but also the loss of social esteem. The loss of jobs to technology and outsourcing has coincided with the sense that society accords less respect to the kind of work the working class does as economic activity has shifted from making things to managing money, as society has lavished outsized rewards on hedge fund managers, Wall Street bankers, and the professional classes, the esteem accorded work in the traditional sense has become fragile and uncertain. Mainstream parties and elites miss this dimension of politics. They think the problem with market-driven globalization is simply a matter of distributive justice. Those who have gained from global trade, new technologies, and the financialization of the economy have not adequately compensated those who have lost out. But this misunderstands the populist complaint. It also reflects a defect in the technocratic approach to governing. Conducting our public discourse as if it were possible to outsource moral and political judgment to markets or to experts and technocrats has emptied democratic argument of meaning and purpose. Such vacuums of public meaning are invariably filled by harsh authoritarian forms of identity and belonging, whether in the form of religious fundamentalism or strident nationalism. That is what we are witnessing today. Four decades of market-driven globalization have hollowed out public discourse, disempowered ordinary citizens, and prompted a populist backlash that seeks to clothe the naked public square with an intolerant, vengeful nationalism. To reinvigorate democratic politics, we need to find our way to a morally more robust public discourse one that takes seriously the corrosive effect of meritocratic striving on the social bonds that constitute our common life. Two, great because good, a brief moral history of merit. There is nothing wrong with hiring people based on merit. In fact, it is generally the right thing to do. If I need a plumber to fix my toilet or a dentist to repair my tooth, I try to find the best person for the job. Well, maybe not the best. I do not conduct a global search, but I certainly want someone well qualified. In filling jobs, merit matters for at least two reasons. One is efficiency. I will be better off if my plumber or dentist is capable rather than incompetent. The other is fairness. It would be wrong to discriminate against the most qualified applicant out of racial or religious or sexist prejudice and hire a less qualified person instead, even if, for the sake of indulging my prejudice, I were willing to accept a shoddy plumbing repair or root canal the discrimination would still be unfair. The more qualified candidates could rightly complain that they were victims of injustice. If hiring based on merit is a good and sensible practice, 
What possibly could be wrong with a meritocracy? How can so benign a principle as merit fuel a torrent of resentment so potent as to transform the politics of democratic societies around the world? When exactly did merit turn toxic, and how? Why Merit Matters The idea that society should allocate economic rewards and positions of responsibility according to merit is appealing for several reasons. Two of these reasons are generalized versions of the case for merit in hiring, efficiency, and fairness. An economic system that rewards effort, initiative, and talent is likely to be more productive than one that pays everyone the same regardless of contribution, or that hands out desirable social positions based on favoritism. Rewarding people strictly on their merits also has the virtue of fairness. It does not discriminate on any basis other than achievement. A society that rewards merit is also attractive on aspirational grounds. Not only does it promote efficiency and renounce discrimination, it also affirms a certain idea of freedom. This is the idea that our destiny is in our hands, that our success does not depend on forces beyond our control, that it's up to us. We are not victims of circumstance, but masters of our fate, free to rise as far as our effort and talents and dreams will take us. This is an exhilarating vision of human agency, and it goes hand in hand with a morally comforting conclusion. We get what we deserve. If my success is my own doing, something I've earned through talent and hard work, I can take pride in it, confident that I deserve the rewards my achievements bring. A meritocratic society, then, is doubly inspiring. It affirms the powerful notion of freedom, and it gives people what they have earned for themselves, and therefore deserve. Inspiring though it is, the principle of merit can take a tyrannical turn, not only when societies fail to live up to it, but also, indeed especially, when they do. The dark side of the meritocratic ideal is embedded in its most alluring promise, the promise of mastery and self-making. This promise comes with a burden that is difficult to bear. The meritocratic ideal places great weight on the notion of personal responsibility. Holding people responsible for what they do is a good thing, up to a point. It respects their capacity to think and act for themselves as moral agents and as citizens. But it is one thing to hold people responsible for acting morally. It is something else to assume that we are, each of us, wholly responsible for our lot in life. Even the phrase, our lot in life, draws on a moral vocabulary that suggests certain limits to unbridled responsibility. 
To speak of one's lot suggests the drawing of lots, a result determined by fate, fortune, or divine providence, not our own effort. It points beyond merit and choice to the realm of luck and chance, or on some accounts, grace. This reminds us that the most consequential early debates about merit were not about income and jobs, but about God's favor. Is it something we earn or receive as a gift? A Cosmic Meritocracy The notion that our fate reflects our merit runs deep in the moral intuitions of Western culture. Biblical theology teaches that natural events happen for a reason. Favorable weather and a bountiful harvest are divine rewards for good behavior. Drought and pestilence are punishments for sin. When a ship encounters stormy seas, people ask, Who on the crew has angered God? From the distance of our scientific age, this way of thinking may seem innocent, even childlike, but it is not as distant as it first appears. In fact, this outlook is the origin of meritocratic thinking. It reflects the belief that the moral universe is arranged in a way that aligns prosperity with merit and suffering with wrongdoing. This is not far from the familiar contemporary view that wealth signifies talent and hard work and that poverty signifies indolence. Two features of the biblical outlook offer an intimation of contemporary meritocracy. One is its emphasis on human agency. The other is its harshness toward those who suffer misfortune. It might seem that contemporary meritocracy emphasizes human agency and will, while the biblical version attributes all power to God. It is he, after all, who doles out the punishments and rewards, the floods, the droughts, the crop-saving rains. But in fact, this is a highly anthropocentric picture in which God spends most of his time responding to the promptings of human beings, rewarding their goodness, punishing their sins. God becomes paradoxically beholden to us, compelled, insofar as he is just, to give us the treatment we have earned. Although God is the one who bestows the rewards and punishments, he does so according to people's merits, not arbitrarily. So even in the presence of God, humans are seen to earn and therefore deserve their fate. Here's a second familiar feature. This meritocratic way of thinking gives rise to harsh attitudes toward those who suffer misfortune. The more acute the suffering, the greater the suspicion that the victim has brought it on himself. Recall the book of Job. A just and righteous man, Job is subjected to unspeakable pain and suffering, including the death of his sons and daughters in a storm. Ever faithful to God, Job cannot fathom why such suffering has been visited upon him. 
He does not realize that he is the victim of a cosmic wager in which God seeks to prove to Satan that Job's faith will not waver whatever hardship he encounters. As Job mourns the loss of his family, his friends, if one can call them friends, insist that he must have committed some egregious sin, and they press Job to imagine what that sin might be. This is an early example of the tyranny of merit. Armed with the assumption that suffering signifies sin, Job's friends cruelly compound his pain by claiming that in virtue of some transgression or other, Job must be to blame for the death of his sons and daughters. Although he knows that he is innocent, Job shares his companion's theology of merit and so cries out to God asking why he, a righteous man, is being made to suffer. When God finally speaks to Job, he rejects the cruel logic of blaming the victim. He does so by renouncing the meritocratic assumption that Job and his companions share. Not everything that happens is a reward or a punishment for human behavior, God proclaims from the whirlwind. All rain is not for the sake of watering the crops of the righteous, nor is every drought for the sake of punishing the wicked. It rains, after all, in places where no one lives, in the wilderness, which is empty of human life. Creation is not only for the sake of human beings. The cosmos is bigger and God's ways more mysterious than the anthropomorphic picture suggests. God confirms Job's righteousness, but chastises him for presuming to grasp the moral logic of God's rule. This represents a radical departure from the theology of merit that informs Genesis and Exodus. In renouncing the idea that he presides over a cosmic meritocracy, God asserts his unbounded power and teaches Job a lesson in humility. Faith in God means accepting the grandeur and mystery of creation, not expecting God to dispense rewards and punishments based on what each person merits or deserves. Salvation and Self-Help The question of merit reappears in Christian debates about salvation. Can the faithful earn salvation through religious observance and good works? Or is God entirely free to decide whom to save, regardless of how people live their lives? The first option seems more just, as it rewards goodness and punishes sin. But theologically, it poses a problem, for it calls into question God's omnipotence. If salvation is something we can earn and therefore deserve, then God is bound, so to speak, to recognize our merit. Salvation becomes, at least partly, 
a matter of self-help, and this implies a limit to God's infinite power. The second option, viewing salvation as an unearned gift, affirms God's omnipotence, but in doing so raises a different problem. If God is responsible for everything in the world, then he must be responsible for the existence of evil. But if God is just, how can he allow suffering and evil he has the power to prevent? If God is all-powerful, the existence of evil seems to imply that he is unjust. Theologically, it is difficult, if not impossible, to hold the following three views simultaneously. That God is just, that God is omnipotent, and that evil exists. One way of resolving this difficulty is to attribute free will to human beings. This shifts the responsibility for evil from God to us. If, in addition to laying down the law, God gave each of us the freedom to decide whether to obey or disobey it, then we are responsible if we choose to do wrong rather than right. Those who act badly will deserve whatever punishment God meets out in this world or the next. Their suffering will not constitute an evil, but rather just punishment for their transgression. An early proponent of this solution was a 5th century British monk named Pelagius. Although he is not well known, some recent commentators have argued that as a champion of free will and individual responsibility in early Christian theology, Pelagius was a forerunner of liberalism. In his day, however, Pelagius' solution generated fierce opposition, not least from Augustine, the most formidable Christian philosopher of the age. For Augustine, attributing free will to humans denies the omnipotence of God and undermines the significance of his ultimate gift, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. If human beings are so self-sufficient that they can earn salvation on their own through good works and performing sacraments, then the incarnation becomes unnecessary. Humility in the face of God's grace gives way to pride in one's own efforts. Despite Augustine's insistence on salvation by grace alone, the practices of the church brought merit back in. Rites and rituals, baptism, prayer, attending mass, performing the sacraments, these cannot persist for long without prompting a sense of efficacy among the participants. It is not easy to sustain the belief that faithful religious observance and good works do not win God's favor or generate merit in his eyes. When faith is embodied in outward observance, mediated and reinforced by a complex array of church practices, a theology of gratitude and grace slides almost inevitably toward a theology of pride and self-help. This, at least, is how Martin Luther viewed the Roman Church of his time, 11 centuries after Augustine had invaded against salvation by merit. The Protestant Revolution 
was born as an argument against merit. Martin Luther's case against the Catholic Church of his day was only partly about the sale of indulgences, the corrupt practice by which rich people tried to buy their way to salvation. Strictly speaking, the payment was thought to expedite penance and shorten one's stay in purgatory. His broader point, following Augustine, was that salvation is wholly a matter of God's grace and cannot be influenced by any effort to win God's favor, whether through good works or the performance of rites. We can no more pray our way to heaven than buy our way in. For Luther, election is a gift that is entirely unearned. Seeking to improve our chances by taking communion or attending mass or otherwise trying to persuade God of our merit is presumptuous to the point of blasphemy. Luther's stringent doctrine of grace was resolutely anti-meritocratic. It rejected salvation by good works and left no room for human freedom or self-making. And yet, paradoxically, the Protestant Reformation he launched led to the fiercely meritocratic work ethic the Puritans and their successors would bring to America. In the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, Max Weber explains how this happened. Like Luther, John Calvin, whose theology inspired the Puritans, held that salvation was a matter of God's grace, not determined by human merit or deservingness. Who will be saved and who damned is predestined, not subject to change based on how people live their lives. Even the sacraments cannot help. Although they must be observed to increase the glory of God, they are not a means to the attainment of grace. The Calvinist doctrine of predestination created unbearable suspense. It is not hard to see why. If you believe that your place in the afterlife is more important than anything you care about in this world, you desperately want to know whether you're among the elect or the damned. But God does not announce this in advance. We cannot tell by observing people's conduct who is chosen and who is damned. The elect are God's invisible church. As Weber writes, the question, am I one of the elect, must sooner or later have arisen for every believer and have forced all other interests into the background. And how can I be sure of this state of grace? The persistence and urgency of this question led Calvinists to a certain version of the work ethic. Since every person is called by God to work in a vocation, working intensely in that calling is a sign of salvation. The point of such work is not to enjoy the wealth it produces, but to glorify God. Working for the sake of lavish consumption would be a distraction from this end, a kind of corruption. Calvinism combined strenuous work with asceticism. Weber points out that this disciplined approach to work 
working hard but consuming little, yields the accumulation of wealth that fuels capitalism, even when the original religious motivations fall away. The Protestant ethic of work and asceticism provides the cultural basis for capitalist accumulation. But for our purposes, the significance of this drama consists in the tension that develops between merit and grace. A lifetime of disciplined work in one's calling is not, to be sure, a route to salvation, but rather a way of knowing whether one is already among the elect. It is a sign of salvation, not its source. But it proved difficult, if not impossible, to resist the slide from viewing such worldly activity as a sign of salvation to viewing it as a source. Psychologically, it is hard to bear the notion that God will take no notice of the faithful work that increases his glory. Once I am encouraged to infer from my good works that I am among the elect, it is hard to resist the thought that my good works have somehow contributed to my election. Theologically, the notion of salvation by works, a meritocratic idea, was already present in the background, both in the Catholic emphasis on rites and sacraments and in the Jewish notion of winning God's favor by observing the law and upholding the ethical precepts of the Sinai Covenant. As the Calvinist notion of work in a calling evolved into the Puritan work ethic, it was hard to resist its meritocratic implication that salvation is earned and that work is a source not merely a sign of salvation. In practice, this means that God helps those who help themselves, Weber observes. Thus the Calvinist, as it is sometimes put, himself creates his own salvation, or, as would be more correct, the conviction of it. Some Lutherans protested that such a view amounts to a reversion to the doctrine of salvation by works, precisely the doctrine Luther considered an affront to God's grace. The Calvinist doctrine of predestination, combined with the idea that the elect must prove their election through work in a calling, leads to the notion that worldly success is a good indication of who is destined for salvation. For everyone, without exception, God's providence has prepared a calling, which he should profess and in which he should labor, Weber explains. This confers divine sanction on the division of labor and supports a providential interpretation of the economic order. Proving one's state of grace through worldly activity brings meritocracy back in. The monks of the Middle Ages constituted a kind of spiritual aristocracy, pursuing their ascetic calling far removed from worldly pursuits. But with Calvinism, Christian asceticism 
strode into the marketplace of life and slammed the door of the monastery behind it, Weber writes. All Christians were called to work and to prove their faith in worldly activity by founding its ethic in the doctrine of predestination Calvinism substituted for the spiritual aristocracy of monks outside of and above the world the spiritual aristocracy of the predestined saints of God within the world. Confident of their election, this spiritual aristocracy of the elect looked down with disdain on those apparently destined for damnation. Here, Weber glimpses what I would call an early version of meritocratic hubris, the consciousness of divine grace of the elect and holy, he writes, was accompanied by an attitude toward the sin of one's neighbor, not of sympathetic understanding, based on consciousness of one's own weakness, but of hatred and contempt for him as an enemy of God bearing the signs of eternal damnation. The Protestant work ethic then not only gives rise to the spirit of capitalism, it also promotes an ethic of self-help and of responsibility for one's fate congenial to meritocratic ways of thinking. This ethic unleashes a torrent of anxious, energetic striving that generates great wealth, but at the same time reveals the dark side of responsibility and self-making. The humility prompted by helplessness in the face of grace gives way to the hubris prompted by belief in one's own merit. Providential thinking then and now. For Luther, Calvin, and the Puritans, debates about merit were about salvation. Do the chosen earn and therefore deserve their election? Or is salvation a gift of grace beyond our control? For us, debates about merit are about worldly success. Do the successful earn and therefore deserve their success? Or is prosperity due to factors beyond our control? At first glance, these two debates seem to have little in common. One is religious, the other secular. But on closer inspection, the meritocracy of our day bears the mark of the theological contest from which it emerged. The Protestant work ethic began as a tense dialectic of grace and merit, helplessness and self-help. In the end, merit drove out grace. The ethic of mastery and self-making overwhelmed the ethic of gratitude and humility. Working and striving became imperatives of their own, detached from the Calvinist notions of predestination and the anxious search for a sign of salvation. It is tempting to attribute the triumph of mastery and merit to the secular bent of our time. As faith in God recedes, confidence in human agency gathers force. 
The more we conceive ourselves as self-made and self-sufficient, the less reason we have to feel indebted or grateful for our success. But even today, our attitudes towards success are not as independent of providential faith as we sometimes think. The notion that we are free human agents, capable of rising and succeeding by our own effort, is only one aspect of meritocracy. Equally important is the conviction that those who succeed deserve their success. This triumphalist aspect of meritocracy generates hubris among the winners and humiliation among the losers. It reflects a residual providential faith that persists in the moral vocabulary of otherwise secular societies. The fortunate person is seldom satisfied with the fact of being fortunate, Max Weber observed. Beyond this, he needs to know that he has a right to his good fortune. He wants to be convinced that he deserves it, and above all, that he deserves it in comparison with others. He wishes to be allowed the belief that the less fortunate also merely experience their due. The tyranny of merit arises, at least in part, from this impulse. Today's secular meritocratic order moralizes success in ways that echo an earlier providential faith. Although the successful do not owe their power and wealth to divine intervention, they rise thanks to their own effort and hard work. Their success reflects their superior virtue. The rich are rich because they are more deserving than the poor. This triumphalist aspect of meritocracy is a kind of providentialism without God at least without a God who intervenes in human affairs. The successful make it on their own, but their success attests to their virtue. This way of thinking highlights the moral stakes of economic competition. It sanctifies the winners and denigrates the losers. The cultural historian Jackson Lears explains how providentialist thinking persisted even as Calvinist notions of predestination and innate human sinfulness fell away. For Calvin and the Puritans, everyone was equally base in the sight of God. Since no one was deserving, salvation had to depend on God's grace. Lears writes, But when liberalizing theologians began to emphasize human beings' ability to save themselves, Success began to signify a convergence of personal merit and providential plan, gradually and haltingly, but unmistakably. The Protestant belief in providence became a way of providing spiritual sanctions for the economic status quo. Providence implicitly underwrote inequalities of wealth. Lears sees in American public culture an uneven contest between an ethic of fortune and a more muscular ethic of mastery. 
The ethic of fortune appreciates the dimensions of life that exceed human understanding and control. It sees that the cosmos does not necessarily match merit with reward. It leaves room for mystery, tragedy, and humility. It is the sensibility of Ecclesiastes. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor of men to skill, but time and chance happens to them all. The ethic of mastery, by contrast, puts human choice at the center of the spiritual order. This does not imply a renunciation of God, but a recasting of his providential role. Lear's shows that the ethic of mastery and control emerges from within evangelical Protestantism and eventually predominates. It brings a shift from a covenant of grace to what Luther had reviled a covenant of works. By the mid-18th century, the works in question were not sacred rituals, as in traditional Catholicism, but secular moral strivings. But those secular strivings still derived their virtue from a providential plan. Lears writes, Providence still governed all, according to Protestant belief, but human beings could freely choose to participate in the unfolding of God's plan, could somehow align themselves with God's purpose. Evangelical rationality balanced belief in an overarching providence with an unprecedented celebration of human effort. Combining human striving with providential sanction creates rocket fuel for meritocracy. It banishes the ethic of fortune and promises to align worldly success with moral deservingness. Lears sees this as a moral loss, a culture less intent on the individual's responsibility to master destiny, he writes, might be more capacious, more generous, more gracious, a keener awareness of the unpredictable character of fortune and fate might encourage fortunate people to imagine their own misfortune and transcend the arrogance of the meritocratic myth to acknowledge how fitfully and unpredictably people get what they deserve. Lears goes on to assess the moral and civic damage in stark terms. The culture of control continues to sustain the smug, secular version of Christian providentialism that has framed American morality for two centuries, though the favored idiom is now technocratic rather than religious. The hubris of the providential view lies in its tendency to sanctify the secular, in its glib assurance, not merely that we are all part of a divine or evolutionary plan, but also that we can actually see that plan at work in prevailing social and economic arrangements, even in the outcome 
of global power struggles. The providentialist notion that people get what they deserve reverberates in contemporary public discourse. It comes in two versions, one hubristic, the other punitive. Both versions assert a demanding notion of responsibility for our fate, be it prosperous or calamitous. The financial crisis of 2008 produced a notable example of providential hubris. Risky and greedy behavior by Wall Street banks had brought the global economy to the brink of meltdown, requiring a massive taxpayer bailout. Even as homeowners and Main Street businesses struggled to recover, leading Wall Street bankers were soon paying themselves tens of billions of dollars in bonuses. Ask how he could defend such lavish pay in the face of public outrage. Lloyd Blankfein, CEO of Goldman Sachs, replied that he and his fellow bankers were, quote, doing God's work. The punitive version of providentialism has recently been voiced by some Christian conservatives in the aftermath of deadly hurricanes and other disasters. When Hurricane Katrina devastated the city of New Orleans in 2005, Reverend Franklin Graham declared that the storm was divine retribution for a wicked city known for Mardi Gras, sex perversion, orgies, and other sinful activities. When an earthquake claimed more than 200,000 lives in Haiti in 2009, the televangelist Pat Robertson attributed the disaster to a pact with the devil that Haitian slaves allegedly made when they rebelled against France in 1804. Days after the 9-11 terrorist attack on the World Trade Center in New York City, Reverend Jerry Falwell, appearing on Robertson's Christian television program, interpreted the attack as divine retribution for America's sins. Here's what he said. The abortionist have got to bear some burden for this because God will not be mocked. And when we destroy 40 million little innocent babies, we make God mad. I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the American Civil Liberties Union, all of them who have tried to secularize America I point the finger in their face and say, you helped this happen. Explaining epic disasters as divine punishment is not exclusive to Christian providentialism. When a devastating earthquake and tsunami struck Japan in 2011, triggering a meltdown at nuclear power plants, Tokyo Governor Shintaro Ishihara an outspoken nationalist, described the event as divine retribution, tenpatsu, for Japan's materialism. We need a tsunami to wipe out egoism, he said, which has rusted onto the mentality of Japanese over a long period of time. Health and wealth. In recent decades, 
American Christianity has produced a buoyant new variant of providential faith called the Prosperity Gospel. Led by televangelists and preachers in some of the country's biggest megachurches, it teaches that God rewards faith with wealth and health. Far from conceiving grace as a mysterious, unearned gift of God, the prosperity gospel emphasizes human agency and will. E.W. Kenyon, an early 20th century evangelist who laid the groundwork for the movement, urged Christians to proclaim, God's ability is mine, God's strength is mine, his success is mine, I am a winner, I am a conqueror. Kate Bowler, a historian of the prosperity gospel, writes that its teaching is summarized in the phrase, I am blessed, where the evidence of being blessed is being healthy and wealthy. Joel Osteen, a celebrity prosperity evangelist whose Houston church is the largest in America, told Oprah Winfrey that Jesus died that we might live an abundant life. His best-selling book offers examples of the blessings that flow from faith, including the mansion in which he lives and the time he was upgraded to business class on a flight. It might seem that a gospel of blessedness would prompt humility in the face of good fortune rather than the meritocratic conviction that health and wealth are signs of virtue. But as Bowler observes, blessed is a term that blurs the distinction between gift and reward. She writes, it can be a term of pure gratitude. Thank you, God, I could not have secured this for myself. But it can also imply that it was deserved. Thank you, me, for being the kind of person who gets it right. It is a perfect word, she writes, for an American society that says it believes the American dream is based on hard work, not luck. Although about one million Americans attend mega churches that preach the prosperity gospel, its resonance with the American faith in striving and self-help give it a broader influence. A Time magazine poll found that nearly a third of American Christians agree that if you give your money to God, God will bless you with more money. And 61% believe that God wants people to be prosperous. By the early 21st century, the prosperity gospel, with its appeal to hard work, upward mobility, and positive thinking, was hard to distinguish from the American dream itself. The prosperity movement did not simply give Americans a gospel worthy of a nation of self-made men, Bowler writes. It affirmed the basic economic structures on which individual enterprise stood. And it reinforced the belief that prosperity is a sign of virtue. Like earlier success gospels, it trusted the market to mete out rewards and punishment in fortune or failure. The virtuous would be richly compensated, while the wicked would eventually stumble. Part of the appeal of the prosperity gospel is its emphasis on the individual's responsibility for his or her own fate. This is a heady, empowering notion. Theologically, 
It asserts that salvation is an achievement, something we earn. In worldly terms, it gives people confidence that with sufficient effort and faith, they can achieve health and wealth. It is relentlessly meritocratic. As with all meritocratic ethics, its exalted conception of individual responsibility, gratifying when things go well, but demoralizing, even punitive, when things go badly. Consider health. What could be more empowering than the belief that our health is in our hands, that the sick can be healed through prayer, that illness can be averted by living well and loving God? But this hyper-agency has a dark side. Illness, when it comes, is not merely a misfortune, but a verdict on our virtue. Even death adds insult to injury. If a believer gets sick and dies, Fowler writes, shame compounds the grief. Those who are loved and lost are just that, those who have lost the test of faith. The harsh face of prosperity gospel thinking can be seen in the debate about health care. When Donald Trump and Republicans in Congress attempted to repeal and replace Obamacare, most argued that their market-friendly alternative would increase competition and reduce costs while protecting people with pre-existing conditions. But Mo Brooks, conservative Republican congressman from Alabama, made a different argument. He acknowledged that the Republican plan would require those with greater health needs to pay more. But this was a virtue, not a vice, because it would reward those who led good lives. Allowing insurance companies to charge higher premiums to those with higher health care costs was not only cost-effective, he thought, but morally justified. Higher premiums for the sick would reduce the cost, quote, to those people who lead good lives. They're healthy. They've done the things to keep their bodies healthy. And right now, he said, those are the people who've done things the right way that are seeing their costs skyrocketing. The congressman's case against Obamacare reiterates the harsh meritocratic logic that runs from the Puritans to the prosperity gospel. If prosperity is a sign of salvation, suffering is a sign of sin. This logic is not necessarily tied to religious assumptions. It is a feature of any ethic that conceives human freedom as the unfettered exercise of will and attributes to human beings a thoroughgoing responsibility for their fate. In 2009, as Obamacare was first being debated, John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods, wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal arguing against a right to health care. His argument relied on libertarian, not religious, assumptions. And yet, like preachers of the prosperity gospel, he asserted a strenuous notion of individual responsibility, arguing that good health is mainly our own doing. Here's what he wrote. 
Many of our healthcare problems are self-inflicted. Two-thirds of Americans are now overweight and one-third are obese. Most of the diseases that kill us and account for about 70% of all healthcare spending, heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, and obesity are mostly preventable through proper diet, exercise, not smoking, minimal alcohol consumption, and other healthy lifestyle choices. Many of those who fall prey to ill health, he argued, have no one to blame but themselves. This is due not to their lack of faith in God, but to their lack of attention to scientific and medical evidence showing that a plant-based, low-fat diet will help prevent and often reverse most degenerative diseases that kill us and are expensive to treat. We should be able to live largely disease-free lives until we are well into our 90s and even past 100 years of age. Although he did not explicitly claim that those who fall ill deserve their disease, he insisted that such people should expect no help from their fellow citizens. Quote, we are all responsible for our own lives and our own health. For Mackey, as for the prosperity gospel evangelists, good health is a sign of virtue, whether pursued in the pews of a megachurch or in the organic produce aisles of Whole Foods. Liberal Providentialism Viewing health and wealth as matters of praise and blame is a meritocratic way of looking at life. It concedes nothing to luck or grace and holds us wholly responsible for our fate. Everything that happens is a reward or punishment for the choices we make and for the way we live. This way of thinking celebrates a thoroughgoing ethic of mastery and control and gives rise to meritocratic hubris. It prompts the successful to believe that they are doing God's work and to look down on victims of misfortune, hurricanes, tsunamis, ill health, as blameworthy for their condition. Such hubris is not only found among prosperity gospel conservatives and libertarian critics of the welfare state, it is also a prominent feature of liberal and progressive politics. One example is the rhetorical trope of explaining America's power and prosperity in providential terms as a consequence of its divinely ordained or righteous status. In her speech, accepting the Democratic nomination for president in 2016, Hillary Clinton proclaimed, in the end, it comes down to what Donald Trump doesn't get. America is great because America is good. She used this language often during her campaign as she sought to persuade voters that Trump's promise to make America great again was inconsistent with his malevolence and venality. But there is no necessary connection between being good and being great. For nations, as for persons, justice is one thing, power and wealth 
another. A glance at history shows that great powers are not necessarily righteous, and morally admirable countries are not necessarily powerful. The phrase, America is great because America is good, is by now so familiar that we forget its providential presuppositions. It echoes the long-standing conviction that America has a divinely inspired mission in the world, a manifest destiny to conquer a continent or to make the world safe for democracy. But even as the sense of divine mandate recedes, politicians reiterate the claim that our greatness derives from our goodness. The slogan itself is relatively recent. The first president to use it was Dwight D. Eisenhower, who attributed it, mistakenly, to Alexis de Tocqueville, author of the classic work, Democracy in America. Speaking in 1953, Eisenhower cited a wise French visitor who came to America seeking the source of America's success. Eisenhower quoted the visitor as follows, Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Although these sentences do not appear in Tocqueville's work, they prove popular with subsequent presidents, especially Republicans. Presidents Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, and George H.W. Bush all used them on inspirational occasions, often when speaking to religious audiences. In a 1984 address to a convention of Christian evangelicals, Ronald Reagan drew explicitly on the providential basis of the slogan. All our material wealth and all our influence have been built on our faith in God and the bedrock values that follow from that faith. The great French philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville 150 years ago is said to have observed that America is great because America is good, and if she ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. In the 1990s, Democrats, seeking to infuse their rhetoric with spiritual resonance, began citing the slogan. As president, Bill Clinton used it nine times. John Kerry and Hillary Clinton both invoked it during their presidential campaigns. The Right Side of History The claim that America is great because it is good is the bright, uplifting side of the idea that hurricanes are punishment for sin. It is the meritocratic faith applied to a nation. According to a long providential tradition, worldly success is a sign of salvation, or in secular terms, of goodness. But this way of interpreting America's role in history poses a challenge for liberals. If wealthy and powerful countries owe their might to their virtue, can't the same be said of wealthy and powerful citizens? 
Many liberals and progressives, especially those with egalitarian commitments, resist the claim that the rich are rich because they are more deserving than the poor. They see this as an ungenerous, moralizing argument used by those who oppose taxing the rich to help the disadvantaged. Against the claim that affluence signifies superior virtue, egalitarian liberals emphasize the contingency of fortune. They point out that success or failure in market societies has as much to do with luck and circumstance as with character and virtue. Many of the factors that separate winners from losers are arbitrary from a moral point of view. But it is not easy to embrace the moralizing providential notion that powerful nations owe their greatness to their goodness, and at the same time reject the moralizing meritocratic notion that wealthy individuals owe their fortunes to their virtue. If might signifies right for countries, the same could be said of the 1%. Morally and theologically, providentialism abroad and meritocracy at home stand or fall together. Although politicians of recent decades did not acknowledge this tension explicitly, they gradually resolved it by accepting meritocratic ways of thinking abroad and at home. The meritocratic outlook implicit in great because good providentialism found parallel expression in domestic debates about solidarity, responsibility, and the welfare state. Beginning in the 1980s and 1990s, liberals increasingly accepted elements of conservative critiques of the welfare state, including their demanding notion of personal responsibility. Although they did not go so far as to attribute all health and wealth to virtuous behavior, politicians such as Bill Clinton in the U.S. and Tony Blair in Britain sought to tie welfare eligibility more closely to the personal responsibility and deservingness of the recipients. The providential aspect of contemporary liberalism can also be glimpsed in another rhetorical turn that touches both foreign and domestic policy. This is the habit of defending one's policies or political allies as being on the right side of history and criticizing opponents for being on the wrong side of history. One might think the debates about the right side and the wrong side of history would have been at their high point during the Cold War, when communist and anti-communist superpowers faced off against each other and claimed that their systems would win the future. Surprisingly, however, no American president used these terms in the context of Cold War debates. It was not until the 1990s and 2000s that the right side and the wrong side of history became a staple of political rhetoric, and then mostly by Democrats. President George W. Bush used the phrase only once, telling an audience of U.S. Army soldiers in 2005 
Middle East terrorists were, quote, losing the struggle because they are on the wrong side of history. He added that thanks to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, the tide of freedom was surging across the Middle East. A year later, his vice president, Richard Cheney, speaking on an aircraft carrier, defended the Iraq war, assuring U.S. troops that our cause is necessary, our cause is just, and we are on the right side of history. But for the most part, this triumphalist rhetoric was the language of Democratic presidents. Bill Clinton used it 25 times during his presidency, Barack Obama 32 times. Sometimes Obama used it as Bush and Cheney had done in describing the struggle against radical Islamic terrorism. Al-Qaeda and its affiliates are small men on the wrong side of history, Obama declared in a speech at the U.S. Military Academy in West Point. Addressing the U.S. Air Force Academy, he said that ISIL terrorists would never be strong enough to destroy Americans or our way of life, in part because we are on the right side of history. But Clinton and Obama also used this triumphalist rhetoric in other contexts. This reflected their confidence following the fall of the Berlin Wall and the breakup of the Soviet Union, that history was moving ineluctably toward the spread of liberal democracy and free markets. In 1994, Clinton expressed optimism for the prospects of Boris Yeltsin, Russia's first democratically elected president, saying he believes in democracy, he's on the right side of history. Responding to democratic stirrings in the Muslim world, Obama, in his first inaugural address, issued a stern warning to tyrants and despots, to those who cling to power through corruption and deceit and the silencing of dissent, know that you are on the wrong side of history. When, in 2009, Iranians engaged in street protests against their repressive regime, Obama praised them, saying, those who stand up for justice are always on the right side of history. When the Arab Spring of 2011 prompted hope that democracy would displace autocracy in North Africa and the Middle East, Obama also invoked history's verdict. He stated that the Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi was on the wrong side of history and supported his removal from power. Questioned about his administration's muted support for pro-democracy protesters in Egypt's Tahrir Square, Obama replied, I think history will end up recording that every juncture in the situation in Egypt, that we were on the right side of history. There are two problems with arguing from history before it happens. First, predicting how things will turn out is notoriously tricky. Ousting Saddam Hussein did not bring freedom and democracy to the Middle East. Even the hopes of the Arab Spring soon gave way to a winter of renewed autocracy and repression. From the vantage point of Vladimir Putin's Russia, Yeltsin's democratic moment now looks ephemeral. Second, 
even if history's course could be predicted. It offers no basis for moral judgment. As things turned out, Putin, not Yeltsin, was on the right side of history, at least in the sense that his autocratic way of governing Russia has prevailed. In Syria, the tyrant Bashar al-Assad survived a brutal civil war and in this sense was on the right side of history. But this does not mean that his regime is morally defensible. The Arc of the Moral Universe Those who defend their cause as being on the right side of history might reply that they are thinking of the longer sweep of history. But this reply depends on a further assumption. Given enough time, and notwithstanding the fitful pace of progress, history bends toward justice. This assumption brings out the providentialism implicit in arguments that appeal to the right side of history. Such arguments rest on the belief that history unfolds in a way that is directed by God or by a secular bent toward moral progress and improvement. Barack Obama held this view and spoke of it often. He frequently cited the saying of Martin Luther King Jr. that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So fond was Obama of this quotation that as president, he cited it 33 times in speeches and proclamations and had it woven into a rug in the Oval Office. This providential faith provides the moral warrant for talk about the right side and the wrong side of history. It also supports the claim that America, or any country, is great because it is good. For only if a nation is doing God's work or advancing history's march toward freedom and justice can its greatness be a sign of its goodness. Believing that one's projects and purposes are aligned with God's plan or with a vision of freedom and justice unfolding in history is a potent source of hope, especially for people struggling against injustice. King's teaching that the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice inspired civil rights marchers of the 1950s and 60s to carry on even in the face of violent opposition by segregationists. King drew this memorable phrase from a sermon by Theodore Parker, a 19th century abolitionist minister from Massachusetts. Parker's version, less succinct than King's, showed how providential theology can serve as a wellspring of hope for the oppressed. Look at the facts of the world you see a continual and progressive triumph of the right. I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure it bends toward justice. Things refuse to be mismanaged long. Jefferson trembled 
when he thought of slavery and remembered that God is just, ere long all America will tremble. In King's hands, as in Parker's, the faith that the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice is a stirring prophetic call to act against injustice. But the same providential faith that inspires hope among the powerless can prompt hubris among the powerful. This can be seen in the changing sensibility of liberalism in recent decades, as the moral urgency of the civil rights era gave way to a complacent triumphalism in the aftermath of the Cold War. The collapse of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall led many in the West to assume that history had vindicated their model of liberal democracy and free market capitalism. Empowered by this assumption, they promoted a neoliberal version of globalization that included free trade agreements, the deregulation of finance, and other measures to ease the flow of goods, capital, and people across national boundaries. They confidently expected that the expansion of global markets would increase global interdependence, lessen the likelihood of war among nations, temper nationalist identities, and promote respect for human rights. The salubrious effects of global commerce and new information technologies might even loosen the grip of authoritarian regimes and coax them in the direction of liberal democracy. Things did not turn out this way. The globalization project would bring on a financial crisis in 2008, and eight years later, a fierce political backlash. Nationalism and authoritarianism would not fade away, but gain momentum around the world and come to threaten liberal institutions and norms within democratic societies. But in the 1980s and 90s, as market-friendly globalization gathered force, the elites who promoted it had little doubt about where history was heading. From the early 1980s to 2008, the use of the right side of history increased more than eightfold in books tracked by Google. Proponents of globalization were confident that history was on their side, urging Congress to pass NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, in 1993. Bill Clinton tried to assuage fears that the deal threatened the job prospects of American workers. But his greatest concern was that a defeat for NAFTA would be a blow to globalization. The thing that I'm most worried about, he said, is that it will put America on the wrong side of history as we move toward the 21st century. That overwhelms every other concern. Speaking in Berlin in 1998, Clinton praised Germany for making a difficult transition to a global economy. Though many German citizens may not yet feel the benefits, he said, Germany's embrace of globalization placed it clearly on the right side of history. 
For liberals, being on the right side of history did not mean embracing unbridled free market economics. It meant promoting global capitalism abroad while combating discrimination and expanding equal opportunity at home. Health insurance reform, family and medical leave legislation, tax credits for college tuition, and an executive order preventing federal contractors from discriminating against LGBT employees were among the policies that Clinton and Obama at various times identified with the right side of history. In a speech endorsing Obama at the 2008 Democratic National Convention, Clinton recalled winning the presidency despite Republican charges that he was too young and inexperienced to be commander in chief. It didn't work in 1992, he said, because we were on the right side of history and it won't work in 2008 because Barack Obama is on the right side of history. Opposing discrimination and expanding opportunity are worthy causes. Hillary Clinton made them the central themes of her 2016 presidential campaign. But by then, when neoliberal globalization had produced vast inequalities of income and wealth, an economy dominated by finance, a political system in which money spoke louder than citizens, and a rising tide of angry nationalism, the project of improving equality of opportunity seemed inadequate to the moment, a pale expression of providential hope. When Obama spoke of the arc of the moral universe bending toward justice, he added an assurance that King had not. Eventually, Obama said, America gets it right. But this changed the spirit of King's message. Over time, Obama's providentialism became less a prophetic call for change than a kind of righteous repose, a comforting reassertion of American exceptionalism. Progress doesn't always go in a straight line, he explained at a 2012 fundraising event in Beverly Hills, California. It goes in zigs and zags. And there are times when the body politic takes a wrong turn, and there are times when there are folks who are left out. But what makes America exceptional is that eventually we get it right. What Dr. King called the arc of the moral universe, it bends toward justice. That's what makes America different. That's what makes America special. In 1895, Catherine Lee Bates, a Wellesley College professor and social reformer, published a patriotic poem called America the Beautiful. Fifteen years later, a church organist set it to music. The song, an ode to American goodness, became one of America's most popular patriotic songs. Many wanted it to become the national anthem. Unlike the Star-Spangled Banner, America's official anthem, America the Beautiful was a pacific hymn. It celebrated the country's purple mountained majesty, not the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, 
The song's refrain was a prayer asking for God's grace. America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. But the line about God's grace was open to two interpretations. It could be read as expressing a wish, may God shed his grace on thee. Or it could be read in the past tense as a statement of fact, God has shed his grace on thee. It is clear from the rest of the lyrics that the poet intends the first meaning, a prayer for God's grace. The next line makes this clear. It does not say that God crowned thy good with brotherhood. It expresses the hope that he will do so. Inevitably, many Americans interpret the line, God shed his grace on thee, in the second way, as a statement of fact. This reflects the assertive rather than the aspirational strand of American providentialism. God's grace is not an unearned gift, but something we deserve and have in fact achieved. America is great because America is good. The balance between merit and grace is not easy to sustain. From the Puritans to the preachers of the prosperity gospel, the ethic of earning and achieving has exerted an almost irresistible allure, threatening always to override the humbler ethic of hoping and praying, of gratitude and gift. Merit drives out grace, or else recasts it in its own image as something we deserve. On October 28, 2001, just weeks after the 9-11 attacks, Ray Charles, the legendary African-American soul singer and musician, blind since childhood, performed an electrifying rendition of America the Beautiful prior to Game 2 of the World Series. Charles was renowned for performing the song as no one else could, evoking aching sorrow and redemptive joy. That night, as he always did, Charles added a riff that allowed his listeners to conclude that America's grace was not a hope and a prayer, but a fait accompli. America, America, God done shed his grace on thee. Oh, yes, he did and crowned thy good, I doubt you remember, saving brotherhood from sea to shining sea. As the last chords echoed in the stadium, four F-16 fighter jets streaked overhead. The plaintive poignance of Charles's song gave way to something harder, less forgiving. Here was the assertive face of providential faith. The arc of the moral universe may bend toward justice, but God helps those who help themselves. Three, the rhetoric 
uprising. These days, we view success the way the Puritans viewed salvation, not as a matter of luck or grace, but as something we earn through our own effort and striving. This is the heart of the meritocratic ethic. It celebrates freedom, the ability to control my destiny by dint of hard work, and deservingness. If I am responsible for having accrued a handsome share of worldly goods, income and wealth, power and prestige, I must deserve them. Success is a sign of virtue. My affluence is my due. This way of thinking is empowering. It encourages people to think of themselves as responsible for their fate, not as victims of forces beyond their control. But it also has a dark side. The more we view ourselves as self-made and self-sufficient, the less likely we are to care for the fate of those less fortunate than ourselves. If my success is my own doing, their failure must be their fault. This logic makes meritocracy corrosive of commonality. Too strenuous a notion of personal responsibility for our fate makes it hard to imagine ourselves in other people's shoes. Over the past four decades, meritocratic assumptions have deepened their hold on the public life of democratic societies, even as inequality has widened to vast proportions, the public culture has reinforced the notion that we are responsible for our fate and deserve what we get. It is almost as if globalization's winners needed to persuade themselves and everyone else that those perched on top and those at the bottom have landed where they belong, or if not, that they would land where they belong if only we could remove unfair barriers to opportunity. Political argument between mainstream center-right and center-left parties in recent decades has consisted mainly of a debate about how to interpret and implement equality of opportunity so that people will be able to rise as far as their efforts and talents will take them. Striving and Deserving I first noticed the rising tide of meritocratic sentiment by listening to my students. Having taught political philosophy at Harvard since 1980, I am sometimes asked how student opinions have changed over the years. I generally find this question difficult to answer. In classroom debates about the subjects I teach, justice, markets and morals, the ethics of new technologies, students have always voiced a wide range of moral and political views. I have not noticed any decisive trend, with one exception. Beginning in the 1990s and continuing to the present, more and more of my students seem drawn to the conviction that their success is their own doing, a product of their effort, something they have earned. Among the students I teach, this meritocratic faith has intensified. 
At first, I assumed this was because they came of age during the era of Ronald Reagan and had absorbed the individualistic philosophy of the time. But these were not, for the most part, politically conservative students. Meritocratic intuitions reach across the political spectrum. They emerge with special intensity in discussions of affirmative action in college admissions. Whether students are for or against affirmative action policies, most voice the conviction that they worked hard to qualify for admission to Harvard and therefore merited their place. The suggestion that they were admitted due to luck or other factors beyond their control provokes strong resistance. It is not hard to understand the growing meritocratic sentiment among students in selective colleges. Over the past half century, admission to elite colleges has become increasingly daunting. As recently as the mid-1970s, Stanford accepted nearly a third of those who applied. In the early 1980s, Harvard and Stanford admitted about one applicant in five. In 2019, they accepted fewer than one in 20. As competition for admission has intensified, the adolescent years of children who aspire to top colleges, or whose parents aspire for them, have become a battleground of fevered striving, a highly scheduled, pressure-packed, stress-inducing regime of advanced placement courses, private college counselors, SAT tutors, athletic and other extracurricular activities, internships and good deeds in distant lands designed to impress college admissions committees, all supervised by anxious hyper-parents seeking the best for their kids. It is difficult to emerge from this gauntlet of stress and striving without believing that you have earned through effort and hard work whatever success may come your way. This does not make students selfish or ungenerous. Many devote copious amounts of time to public service and other good works. But the experience does make them staunch meritocrats. Like their Puritan forebears, they believe they deserve the success their hard work has won. The meritocratic sensibility I've noticed among college students is not only an American phenomenon. In 2012, I gave a talk at Jiamin University on the southern coast of China. My subject was the moral limits of markets. Recent headlines had told of a Chinese teenager who sold one of his kidneys to buy an iPhone and iPad. I asked the students what they thought about this case. In the debate that ensued, many students took the libertarian view. If the teenager freely agreed, without pressure or coercion to sell his kidney, he should have the right to do so. Others disagreed, arguing that it is unfair for the rich to be able to extend their lives by buying kidneys from the poor. A student toward the back of the hall offered a reply. 
Having earned their wealth, rich people are meritorious and so deserve to live longer. I was taken aback by this brazen application of meritocratic thinking. In retrospect, I realized that it is morally akin to the prosperity gospel belief that health and wealth are signs of God's favor. Of course, the Chinese student who voiced it was probably not steeped in Puritan or providential traditions. But he and his classmates had come of age during China's turn to a market society. The notion that those who prosper deserve the money they make runs deep in the moral intuitions of the students I have encountered during visits over the past decade to a number of Chinese universities. Notwithstanding the cultural differences, these Chinese students, like my Harvard students, are the winners of a hyper-competitive admissions process that unfolds against the background of a hyper-competitive market society. It is no wonder that they resist the thought that we are indebted for our success and attracted to the idea that we earn and therefore deserve whatever rewards the system bestows on our efforts and talent. Markets and Merit As Deng Xiaoping was launching China's market reforms in the late 1970s and early 80s, Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom and Ronald Reagan in the United States were seeking to move their societies toward a greater reliance on markets. This period of market faith set the stage for the rise of meritocratic values and practices in the decades that followed. To be sure, markets do not necessarily rest on meritocratic assumptions. The most familiar arguments for markets are about utility and freedom. The first argues that markets create incentives that boost GDP and maximize the general welfare. The second argues that markets leave people free to choose what value to place on the goods they exchange. But the market triumphalism of the 1980s prompted the articulation of a third meritocratic rationale. Provided they operate within a fair system of equal opportunity, markets give people what they deserve. As long as everyone has an equal chance to compete, market outcomes reward merit. The meritocratic ethic was implicit at times in the free market conservatism of Thatcher and Reagan. But it came to its fullest articulation in the politics of the center-left figures who succeeded them. This is due to a distinctive feature of center-left political argument in the 1990s and since. Rather than challenge the premise of Thatcher and Reagan's market faith, political figures such as Tony Blair and Bill Clinton accepted it and sought to soften its harshest features. They accepted the Reagan-Thatcher notion that market mechanisms are the primary instruments for achieving 
the public good. But they wanted to ensure that markets operated under fair conditions. All citizens, whatever their race or class, religion or ethnicity, gender or sexual orientation, should be able to compete on equal terms for the rewards that markets bestow. For the center-left liberals, equality of opportunity required more than the absence of discrimination. It also required access to education, healthcare, childcare, and other services that enable people to compete effectively in the labor market. Here then was the argument of center-left market-friendly liberalism from the 1990s to 2016, enabling everyone to compete on equal terms was not only compatible with the market society, but a way to fulfill its underlying principles. Two such principles were fairness and productivity. Eliminating discrimination and expanding opportunity would make markets more fair, and enlisting a wider pool of talent would make markets more productive. Bill Clinton often advanced the fairness argument under cover of the productivity argument, as when he said, we don't have a person to waste. But beyond fairness and productivity, the liberal argument also gestured toward a third, more potent ideal implicit in the case for markets. Enabling people to compete solely on the basis of effort and talent would bring market outcomes into alignment with merit. In a society where opportunities were truly equal, markets would give people their just desserts. Over the past four decades, the language of merit and deservingness has become central to public discourse. One aspect of the meritocratic turn displays the hard side of meritocracy. This aspect finds expression in the demanding notions of personal responsibility that have accompanied attempts to rein in the welfare state and to shift risks from governments and companies to individuals. A second aspect of the meritocratic turn is more aspirational. It finds expression in what might be called the rhetoric of rising. The promise that those who work hard and play by the rules deserve to rise as far as their talents and dreams will take them. The rhetoric of personal responsibility and the rhetoric of rising, having animated political argument in recent decades, eventually contributed to the populist backlash against meritocracy. The Rhetoric of Responsibility In the 1980s and 1990s, the rhetoric of responsibility figured prominently in debates about the welfare state. Through much of the 20th century, arguments over the welfare state were arguments about solidarity, about what we owe one another as citizens. Some held more demanding notions of solidarity, others more limited ones. Since the 1980s, debates about the welfare state have been less about solidarity 
than about the extent to which the disadvantaged are responsible for their misfortune. Some assert more demanding notions of personal responsibility, others more restrictive ones. Expansive conceptions of personal responsibility are a clue that meritocratic assumptions are in play. The more thoroughgoing our responsibility for our fate, the more we merit praise or blame for the way our lives turn out. The Reagan-Thatcher critique of the welfare state argued that people should be held responsible for their own well-being and that the community owed help only to those whose misfortune was not their own fault. We will never abandon those who, through no fault of their own, must have our help, Reagan declared in a State of the Union address. But let us work to see how many can be freed from the dependency of welfare and made self-supporting. Through no fault of their own, this is a revealing phrase. It begins as a trope of generosity. Those who are needy through no fault of their own have a claim on the community's help. But like all attributions of responsibility, it also has a harsh side. If those who are victims of circumstance deserve our help, then those who had a hand in their own misfortune arguably do not. In presidential rhetoric, the phrase through no fault of their own was first used by Calvin Coolidge and Herbert Hoover. It implies a stringent notion of personal responsibility. Those whose poverty or ill health is due to bad choices they have made do not deserve government help and should be left to fend for themselves. Franklin D. Roosevelt employed the phrase from time to time in the course of arguing that people thrown out of work by the Great Depression could hardly be blamed for being unemployed. Ronald Reagan, seeking to reduce the role of government, used the phrase more frequently than any prior president. But each of his Democratic successors, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, employed it more than twice as often as Reagan did. In doing so, they, like Reagan, implicitly distinguished between the deserving and the undeserving poor. Those who struggled due to forces beyond their control were deserving of government assistance. Those who were responsible for their misfortune, possibly not. In 1992, Clinton campaigned for the presidency promising to end welfare as we know it. As president, he connected the rhetoric of responsibility with the rhetoric of rising, evoking both the hard side and the aspirational face of meritocracy. We must do what America does best, he proclaimed in his first inaugural address, offer more opportunity to all and demand more responsibility from all. It is time to break the bad habit of expecting something for nothing from our government or from each other. 
The rhetoric of responsibility and the rhetoric of rising had this in common. Both gestured toward the ideal of self-reliance and self-making. In the 1980s and 1990s, responsibility meant getting off welfare and finding a job. Opportunity meant acquiring the education and skills to compete effectively in the labor market. If opportunities were equal, people would rise based on their efforts and talents, and their success would be the measure of their merit. Clinton put it this way, all Americans have not just a right, but a solemn responsibility to rise as far as their God-given talents and determination can take them. Opportunity and responsibility, they go hand in hand. We can't have one without the other. Clinton echoed Reagan's argument that welfare should be restricted to those who were needy through no fault of their own. Government's role, Clinton stated, is to create economic opportunity and to help people who, through no fault of their own, have sustained economic burdens. In 1996, he signed into law a welfare reform measure opposed by many of his fellow Democrats that demanded personal responsibility, required welfare recipients to work, and limited the time they could stay on welfare. The new emphasis on responsibility and its meritocratic implications reached across the Atlantic. As Clinton was enacting welfare reform in the name of personal responsibility, Tony Blair, soon to become Prime Minister of Britain, was sounding a similar message. We need a new settlement on welfare for a new age where opportunity and responsibility go together. Blair was explicit about the meritocratic inspiration of his politics. New Labour is committed to meritocracy, he wrote. We believe that people should be able to rise by their talents, not by their birth or the advantages of privilege. A few years later, in Germany, Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder justified welfare in similar terms. With these measures, we are weatherizing our welfare state against the storms of globalization. In doing this, we will, in every respect, need to increase responsibility, more personal responsibility for ourselves, more common responsibility for the opportunities of our children. In terms of social policy, this means everybody has the same opportunities, but it also means that everybody has the duty to seize their opportunities. The rhetoric of responsibility is by now so familiar that it is easy to miss its distinctive meaning in recent decades and its connection to meritocratic understandings of success. Political leaders have long spoken of responsibility, typically referring to citizens' duties to their country and fellow citizens. But as Yasha Munk points out, responsibility now refers to our responsibility to take care of ourselves 
and to suffer the consequences if we fail to do so. The welfare state has become less responsibility buffering, Munch writes, and more responsibility tracking, limiting welfare eligibility to those who fall on hard times through bad luck rather than bad behavior is an example, an attempt to treat people according to their merits. As far as your talents will take you. The rhetoric of rising is also novel in a way that can easily escape notice. Ideals of equal opportunity and upward mobility have long been a part of the American dream. They also inspire many other societies. The notion that people should be able to rise as far as their talents and hard work will take them is familiar to the point of cliché. It is hardly controversial. Mainstream politicians constantly invoke it. No one argues against it. So it is surprising to discover that this slogan is relatively new. It only became prominent in American political discourse in the last four decades. Ronald Reagan was the first U.S. president to make it a mainstay of his political rhetoric. Speaking at a White House briefing for black members of his administration, he made explicit the connection between merit and the right to rise. All Americans have the right to be judged on the sole basis of individual merit, he said, and to go just as far as their dreams and hard work will take them. For Reagan, the rhetoric of rising was not only about overcoming discrimination. It had many uses, including arguing for tax cuts. Lower taxes would knock down the barriers on the road to success so that all Americans can go as far as their hard work, skill, imagination, and creativity will take them, he said. Bill Clinton adopted Reagan's slogan and used it frequently. The American dream that we were all raised on is a simple but powerful one. If you work hard and play by the rules, you should be given a chance to go as far as your God-given ability will take you. By the 2000s, the rhetoric of rising had become a bipartisan rhetorical reflex. Republicans, George W. Bush, John McCain, and Marco Rubio all invoked it. But no American president was as attached to the slogan as Barack Obama, who used it more than all previous presidents combined. In fact, it was arguably the central theme of his presidency. When it comes to higher education, Obama told the gathering of educators at the White House, what ultimately matters is making sure that bright, motivated young people have the chance to go as far as their talents and their hard work and their dreams can take them. Obama viewed a college education as the primary vehicle of upward mobility. Now as a nation, we don't promise equal outcomes, but we were founded on the idea that everybody should have an equal opportunity to succeed. No matter who you are, what you look like, where you come from, you can make it, Obama said. That's an essential promise of America. 
where you start should not determine where you end up. And so I'm glad that everybody wants to go to college. On another occasion, Obama cited the example of his wife, Michelle, who had grown up in a working class family, but attended Princeton and Harvard Law School and was able to rise. Michelle and her brother were able to get an unbelievable education, Obama said, and go as far as their dreams would take them. This supported Obama's belief that what makes America so exceptional, what makes us so special, is this basic bargain, this basic idea that in this country, no matter what you look like, no matter where you come from, no matter what your last name is, no matter what setbacks you may experience in this country, if you work hard, if you are willing to take responsibility, then you can make it, you can get ahead. Echoing Reagan and Clinton, Obama's rhetoric of rising pointed toward meritocracy. It emphasized non-discrimination, no matter what you look like, no matter where you come from. It insisted on hard work, and it admonished citizens to take responsibility for themselves. Here then was the link between the rhetoric of rising and the meritocratic ethic. If opportunities are truly equal, then not only will people rise as far as their talents and hard work will take them, their success will be their own doing, and they will deserve the rewards that come their way. Getting what you deserve. As the rhetoric of rising became prominent, the language of merit and deservingness found growing expression throughout the public culture. Recall the ubiquitous McDonald's advertising slogan and jingle of the 1970s and 80s. You deserve a break today. Or consider books and newspapers. According to Google Ngram, which tracks the frequency of words and phrases in books, the use of the phrase you deserve more than tripled from 1970 to 2008. In the New York Times, you deserve appeared more than four times as often in 2018 as it did in the year Ronald Reagan took office. Some invocations of deservingness were explicitly related to meritocratic thinking. For example, a 1988 New York Times article described a growing market for motivational tapes with hypnotic subliminal messages murmured under the sound of ocean waves. One such message, quote, I deserve to do better than dad. I deserve to succeed. I deserve to reach my goals. I deserve to be rich. But as the language of deservingness infused popular culture, it became a soothing all-purpose promise of success, as in the headline that accompanied a New York Times recipe, you deserve more succulent chicken. The secret to achieving the tender chicken you deserve? Don't overcook it. As the language of merit and dessert became prominent in everyday life, 
Something similar was happening in academic philosophy. In the 1960s and 1970s, the leading Anglo-American philosophers rejected meritocracy on the grounds that what people earn in the market depends on contingencies beyond their control, such as demand for one's talents and whether one's talents are common or rare. But by the 1980s and 1990s, an influential group of philosophers, perhaps reflecting the rhetoric of responsibility prevalent in the politics of the day, revived the case for merit. Known as luck egalitarians, they argued that society's obligation to help the disadvantaged depends on figuring out who among the needy are responsible for their misfortune and who are victims of bad luck. Only those who bear no responsibility for their plight, they maintained, deserve help from the government. Among politicians, the language of merit and deservingness accompanied the rhetoric of rising. In the 1960s and 70s, U.S. presidents rarely sought to sway their audiences by telling them what they deserved. John F. Kennedy never used the term, you deserve. That changed with Reagan, who used, you deserve, more often than his five predecessors combined. Speaking to a group of business leaders in 1983, for example, he said that those who succeed by their own efforts deserve to be rewarded. This nation was not built on a foundation of envy and resentment. The dream I've always believed in is no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, if you work hard, pull yourself up and succeed, then by golly, you deserve life's prize. And trying for that prize made America the greatest nation on earth. After Reagan, you deserve became a nonpartisan fixture of presidential discourse. Clinton used it twice as often as Reagan, Obama three times as often in contexts ranging from the quotidian to the consequential. Speaking in a city that had received a job-producing Defense Department administrative center, Clinton said, you got it because you deserve it. Addressing a group of warehouse workers, Obama declared, if you put in a hard day's work, you deserve decent pay for it. Speaking at a community college in Ohio, he defended tax cuts for the middle class, saying, you deserve a break. You deserve some help. In the United Kingdom, the faith in meritocracy voiced by Tony Blair in the 1990s continued to inform British politics even after the Brexit vote. In 2016, shortly after becoming Prime Minister, Theresa May set out her vision for a truly meritocratic Britain. Speaking of ordinary working-class people, May declared they deserve a better deal. The better deal she offered consisted in living up to meritocratic principles. Here's how she put it. I want Britain to be the world's great meritocracy. 
a country where everyone has a fair chance to go as far as their talent and their hard work will allow. I want Britain to be a place where advantage is based on merit, not privilege. Where it's your talent and hard work that matter, not where you were born, who your parents are, or what your accent sounds like. Notwithstanding their talk of rising and deserving, most American politicians do not speak explicitly about meritocracy. Obama was an exception. For example, in an interview with an ESPN sports commentator, he mused that what attracts people to sports is that it's, quote, one of the few places where it's a true meritocracy. There's not a lot of BS. Ultimately, who's winning, who's losing, who's performing, who's not, it's all laid out there. During her 2016 presidential campaign, Hillary Clinton drew frequently on the rhetoric of rising and deserving. Our campaign is about the fundamental belief that in America, every person, no matter what you look like, who you are, who you love, you should have the chance to go as far as your hard work and dreams will take you. She vowed, if elected, to make it possible for you to get the chances and the opportunities you deserve to have. At one campaign rally, she declared, I want this to be a true meritocracy. I'm tired of inequality. I want people to feel like they can get ahead if they work for it. Populist Backlash To Hillary Clinton's misfortune, the rhetoric of rising had, by 2016, lost its capacity to inspire. Donald Trump, the candidate who defeated her, did not speak about upward mobility or the belief that Americans can rise as far as their talent and hard work will take them. As best I can determine, Trump never used this slogan during his campaign, nor has he used it during his presidency. Instead, he offered blunt talk of winners and losers and promised to make America great again. But his vision of greatness had nothing to do with fulfilling the meritocratic project that had animated American public discourse for the previous four decades. In fact, there's reason to think that the populist antipathy toward meritocratic elites played a part in Trump's election and in the surprising vote in Britain earlier that year to leave the European Union. Elections are complicated events and it is difficult to say conclusively what prompts voters to vote as they do. But many working-class supporters of Trump, Brexit, and populist parties in other countries seemed less interested in promises of upward mobility than in reassertions of national sovereignty, identity, and pride. They resented meritocratic elites, experts, and professional classes who had celebrated market-driven globalization, reaped the benefits, consigned working people to the discipline of foreign competition, and who seemed to identify more with global elites than with their fellow citizens. Not all populist grievances against the established order 
were reactions against meritocratic hubris. Some were entangled with xenophobia, racism, and hostility to multiculturalism. But the populist backlash was provoked at least in part by the galling sense that those who stood astride the hierarchy of merit looked down with disdain on those they considered less accomplished than themselves. This populist complaint is not without warrant. For decades, meritocratic elites intoned the mantra that those who work hard and play by the rules can rise as far as their talents will take them. They did not notice that for those stuck at the bottom or struggling to stay afloat, the rhetoric of rising was less a promise than a taunt. This is how Trump voters may have heard Hillary Clinton's meritocratic mantra. For them, the rhetoric of rising was more insulting than inspiring. This is not because they rejected meritocratic beliefs. To the contrary, they embraced meritocracy, but believed it described the way things already worked. They did not see it as an unfinished project requiring further government action to dismantle barriers to achievement. This is partly because they feared such intervention would favor ethnic and religious minorities, thus violating rather than vindicating meritocracy as they saw it. But it is also because, having worked hard to achieve a modicum of success, they had accepted the harsh verdict of the market in their own case and were invested in it, morally and psychologically. A survey conducted after the 2016 election asked Trump supporters and opponents to agree or disagree with several statements about how well the United States conformed to meritocratic principles, including the following. Overall, U.S. society is equitable and fair. Individuals are personally responsible for their position in society. Opportunities for economic advancement are available to anyone who cares to look for them. Society has reached a point where white Americans and racial or ethnic minority Americans have equal opportunities for achievement. Unsurprisingly, well-off respondents agreed with these statements more readily than those from lesser economic backgrounds. But independent of class status, Trump supporters agreed more strongly with each of these statements than did non-supporters. Trump supporters resented liberals' rhetoric of rising, not because they rejected meritocracy, but because they believed it described the prevailing social order. They had submitted to its discipline, had accepted the hard judgment it pronounced on their own merits, and believed others should do the same. The tyranny of merit arises from more than the rhetoric of rising. It consists in a cluster of attitudes and circumstances that taken together have made meritocracy toxic. First, 
under conditions of rampant inequality and stalled mobility, reiterating the message that we are responsible for our fate and deserve what we get erodes solidarity and demoralizes those left behind by globalization. Second, insisting that a college degree is the primary route to a respectable job and a decent life creates a credentialist prejudice that undermines the dignity of work and demeans those who have not been to college. And third, insisting that social and political problems are best solved by highly educated, value-neutral experts is a technocratic conceit that corrupts democracy and disempowers ordinary citizens. Can you make it if you try? When politicians reiterate a hallowed verity with mind-numbing frequency, there is reason to suspect that it is no longer true. This is the case with the rhetoric of rising. It is no accident that the rhetoric of rising was at its most fulsome at a time when inequality was approaching daunting proportions. When the richest 1% take in more than the combined earnings of the entire bottom half of the population, when the median income stagnates for 40 years, the idea that effort and hard work will carry you far begins to ring hollow. This hollowness produces two kinds of discontent. One is the frustration that arises when the system falls short of its meritocratic promise, when those who work hard and play by the rules are unable to advance. The other is the despair that arises when people believe the meritocratic promise has already been fulfilled and they have lost out. This is a more demoralizing discontent because it implies that for those left behind, their failure is their fault. Americans more than most adhere to the belief that hard work brings success, that our destiny is in our hands. According to global public opinion surveys, most Americans, 77%, believe that people can succeed if they work hard. Only half of Germans think so. In France and Japan, majorities say hard work is no guarantee of success. Asked what factors are very important to getting ahead in life, Americans overwhelmingly 73% put hard work first, reflecting the enduring hold of the Protestant work ethic. In Germany, barely half consider hard work very important to getting ahead. In France, only one in four does. As with all such surveys, the attitudes people express depend on how the question is framed. When it comes to explaining why some people are rich and others poor, Americans are less certain about the role of effort than when asked generally about work and success. Asked whether the rich are rich because they work harder than others or because they had advantages in life, Americans are evenly divided. Asked why people are poor, 
A majority say it is due to circumstances beyond their control. Only three in ten say poverty is due to a lack of effort. Belief in the efficacy of work as a route to success reflects the broader conviction that we are masters of our destiny, that our fate is in our hands. Americans profess greater faith in human mastery than do citizens of most other countries. The majority of Americans, 57%, disagree with the statement, success in life is pretty much determined by forces outside our control. By contrast, majorities in most other countries, including most European countries, view success as determined mainly by forces outside our control. These views about work and self-help have implications for solidarity and the mutual obligations of citizens. If everyone who works hard can be expected to succeed, then those who fall short have no one to blame but themselves, and it is hard to make the case for helping them. This is the harsh side of meritocracy. If those who land on top and those who land on the bottom are wholly responsible for their fate, then social positions reflect what people deserve. The rich are rich thanks to their own doing. If, however, the most fortunate members of society are indebted for their success to good luck or God's grace or the community's support, then the moral case for sharing one another's fate is stronger. It is easier to make the case that we are all in this together. This may explain why the United States, with its robust faith that we are masters of our fate, has a less generous welfare state than the social democracies of Europe, whose citizens are more inclined to attribute their life circumstance to forces outside their control. If everyone can succeed through effort and hard work, then government need simply ensure that jobs and opportunities are truly open to all. American politicians of the center-left and center-right may disagree about what policies equality of opportunity actually requires, but they share the assumption that the aim is to provide everyone, whatever his or her starting point in life, a chance to rise. They agree, in other words, that mobility is the answer to inequality and that those who rise will have earned their success. But the American faith in the ability to rise through effort and grit no longer fits the facts on the ground. In the decades following World War II, Americans could expect that their children would do better economically than they had. Today, this is no longer the case. Of children born in the 1940s, almost all, 90%, earned more than their parents. Of children born in the 1980s, only half surpassed their parents' earnings. It is harder to climb from poverty to affluence than the popular belief in upward mobility would suggest. Of those born poor in America, few make it to the top. In fact, 
Most do not even make it to the middle class. Studies of upward mobility typically divide the income ladder into five rungs. Of those born on the bottom rung, only about four to seven percent rise to the top, and only about a third reach the middle rung or higher, although the exact numbers vary from one study to the next. Very few Americans live out the rags-to-riches story celebrated in the American dream. In fact, there is less economic mobility in the United States than in many other countries. Economic advantages and disadvantages in the U.S. carry over from one generation to the next more frequently than in Germany, Spain, Japan, Australia, Sweden, Canada, Finland, Norway, and Denmark. In the U.S. and the U.K., nearly half of the economic advantage of high-earning parents is passed on to their children. That is more than twice the earnings advantage that children inherit in Canada, Finland, Norway, and Denmark, where mobility is highest. Danish and Canadian children, it turns out, are far more likely to rise from poverty to affluence than U.S. children. By these measures, the American dream is alive and well and living in Copenhagen. The American dream is also flourishing in Beijing. An article in the New York Times recently posed the following scenario. Imagine you have a bet. There are two 18-year-olds, one in China, the other in the United States, both poor and short on prospects. You have to pick the one with the better chance at upward mobility. Which would you choose? Not long ago, the article continues, the answer might have seemed simple. The American dream, after all, had long promised a pathway to a better life for anyone who worked hard. But the answer today is startling. China has risen so quickly that your chances of improving your station in life there vastly exceed those in the United States. Given China's unprecedented economic growth since 1980, this conclusion is less surprising than it seems. Rich and poor alike realized income gains in China, while in the U.S., the gains of growth have gone mainly to those at the top. Although the U.S. remains a much wealthier country per capita than China, Today's generation of Chinese young people is richer than their parents' generation. More surprising is the fact that, according to the World Bank, levels of income inequality in China are about the same as in the U.S. Moreover, China now has greater intergenerational mobility than the U.S. This means that in the U.S., the land of opportunity. How much you make is more closely tied to where you started out than it is in China. When my students encounter these findings, they are disquieted. Most have an instinctive faith in American exceptionalism, in the idea that America is a place where those who work hard can get ahead. This belief in upward mobility. Is America's traditional answer to inequality? Yes, 
America may have greater income inequality than other democracies, they reason. But here, unlike the more rigid, class-bound societies of Europe, inequality matters less because no one is consigned to the class of his or her birth. But once they learn that the U.S. has more inequality and less mobility than many other countries, my students are troubled and perplexed. Some resist what the mobility data shows, pointing to their own experience of striving and succeeding. A conservative student of mine from Texas responded that, in his experience, all that really matters is how hard one works. Everyone in my high school understood the rules. He said, if you work hard in school and do well, you get into a good college and get a good job. If not, you work in the oil fields. And that's how things turned out. Others, while recalling their strenuous effort during high school years, acknowledged the sources of support that helped them succeed. Some of my students argue that even if the American dream is at odds with the facts, it is important not to spread the news. Better to preserve the myth so that people will continue to believe it is possible to rise as far as their talents and hard work will take them. This would turn the American dream into what Plato described as a noble lie, a belief that the one true sustains civic harmony by inducing citizens to accept certain inequalities as legitimate. In Plato's case, it was the myth that God created people with different metals in their souls, giving divine sanction to an arrangement in which a guardian class led by a philosopher king governs the city. In our case, it would be the myth that in America, despite the sizable gap between rich and poor, even those on the bottom can make it if they try. My students are not the only ones who are mistaken about the prospects of rising. When researchers asked members of the public in the U.S. and Europe how likely it is to rise from poverty to affluence in their countries, the American and European respondents generally got it wrong. Interestingly, however, they got it wrong in opposite ways. Americans overestimated the chance of rising, and Europeans underestimated it. Seeing and Believing These results reveal something important about the way we understand social and political arrangements. We perceive the world in the light of our hopes and fears. At first glance, it might seem that people are simply ill-informed about the mobility that prevails in their societies. But what is interesting, what calls out for interpretation, is that the misperceptions have a certain shape. Europeans, whose societies are more equal and more mobile than the United States, are overly pessimistic about the possibility of rising, while Americans 
are overly optimistic. Why is this so? In both cases, beliefs and convictions shape perceptions. Americans' strong attachment to individual initiative, together with their willingness to accept inequality, leads them to exaggerate the possibility of rising through hard work. European skepticism that individual effort conquers all, together with their lesser tolerance of inequality, leads them to underestimate the possibility of rising. This tendency to view the world through the lens of our ideals and expectations sheds light on how the meritocratic promise can be demoralizing, even humiliating, for working-class and middle-class voters. On the face of it, this is puzzling. Who could object to proposals to break down barriers, level the playing field, and improve educational opportunities so that everyone, not only those born to privilege, can have a chance at the American dream? Wouldn't the rhetoric of rising appeal to working-class and middle-class voters who could benefit from the educational opportunities, job training, childcare, family leave, and other policies that liberals and progressives were offering? No, not necessarily. By 2016, as the baleful effects of globalization on ordinary workers became clear, the rhetoric of rising offered by liberal elites conveyed a harsh suggestion. Even in the face of rising inequality, it insisted that we are responsible for our fate and that we therefore deserve the success or misfortune that comes our way. This way of viewing inequality fueled meritocratic hubris. It reinforced the belief that those who had reaped the benefits of globalization deserved their bounty, and that those left behind deserved their meager lot. Larry Summers, an economic advisor to President Obama, put it bluntly, quote, one of the challenges in our society is that the truth is kind of a disequalizer. One of the reasons that inequality has probably gone up in our society is that people are being treated closer to the way that they're supposed to be treated. It might be argued in defense of the rhetoric of rising that it describes the opportunity to compete on equal terms as an ideal worth aiming at not as a fact of the world in which we live, but merit has a way of overreaching. It begins as an ideal, but slides into a claim about the way things are. Although the rhetoric of rising is aspirational, pointing to a promise that has yet to be redeemed, its articulation invariably turns congratulatory. Here in America, everyone who works hard can rise. Like most powerful rhetoric, it commingles the aspirational with the congratulatory. It asserts the hope as if it were a fact. 
Obama's rhetoric is a case in point. In a 2012 radio address, he said, This is a country where no matter what you look like or where you come from, if you're willing to study and work hard, you can go as far as your talents will take you. You can make it if you try. Obama's listeners would not be mistaken to think that their president was describing the way things actually worked in America, not offering an ideal of a more equal, more mobile society that he hoped to bring about. He spoke in a congratulatory vein, praising America for having achieved a society in which hard work, not inherited privilege, was the key to success. And yet, as he continued, he shifted from congratulation to aspiration. I am only the president of the United States today because of the chance my education gave me. And I want every child in America to have that chance. That is what I am fighting for. And as long as I have the privilege of being your president, that is what I'm going to keep fighting for. This tendency to move from fact to hope and back again is not a slip of the tongue or philosophical confusion, but a characteristic feature of political rhetoric. It plays out with special poignance in the rhetoric of rising. Its commingling of hope and fact muddies the meaning of winning and losing. If meritocracy is an aspiration, then those who fall short can always blame the system. But if meritocracy is a fact, then those who fall short are invited to blame themselves. In recent years, they have been invited, above all, to blame themselves for failing to acquire a college degree. One of the most galling features of meritocratic hubris is its credentialism. Four, credentialism, the last acceptable prejudice. For years, Michael Cohen had served as Donald Trump's personal attorney and fixer. In February 2019, he testified before Congress. By then, he had turned on his former boss and was revealing some of the unsavory activities he undertook on Trump's behalf, including paying hush money to a porn star to prevent her from disclosing an affair with Trump. During his testimony, Cohen also revealed another task he had performed at Trump's behest, threatening to sue the colleges Trump had attended and the college board if they ever made public his college grades or SAT scores. Trump was presumably embarrassed by his academic record and apparently feared that making it public would damage his presidential candidacy or at least his reputation. Cohen highlighted the hypocrisy in Trump's attempt to hide his academic records. Some years earlier, 
Trump had insisted that President Obama make his academic records public. I heard he was a terrible student. Terrible, Trump declared in 2011. How does a bad student go to Columbia and then to Harvard? Let him show his records. Cohen's disclosure of his attempt to keep Trump's grades and SAT scores from public view attracted less attention than his more salacious testimony about paying off the porn star. But as a sign of the times, it was more consequential. What it revealed was the public significance of credentialism. By the 2000s, how well one did in college, or even on college entrance exams, loomed large enough to cast glory or disrepute on a president. Donald Trump certainly thought so. He first attempted to discredit Obama by demanding his birth certificate, casting doubt on his citizenship. When that failed, he leveled against Obama the next most potent insult he could imagine, casting doubt on his meritocratic credentials. Weaponizing College Credentials Trump's line of attack reflected his own insecurity. Throughout his candidacy and his presidency, Trump boasted often about his intellectual credentials. A study of presidential word choice found that he spoke at a fourth-grade vocabulary level, the lowest of any president in the past half-century. His own Secretary of State reportedly described him as a moron, and his Secretary of Defense said his understanding of world affairs was that of a fifth or sixth grader. Stung by these and other disparaging remarks about his intellect, Trump was at pains to insist that he was a smart person, in fact, a very stable genius. Asked during his 2016 presidential campaign to name the foreign policy experts he was consulting, he replied, I'm speaking with myself, number one, because I have a very good brain, and I've said a lot of things. My primary consultant is myself. He repeatedly asserted that he had a high IQ and that his critics had low ones, an insult he directed especially against African Americans. Enamored with the genetics of IQ, Trump often pointed out that his uncle had been a professor at MIT, an academic genius, he said, evidence that he, Trump, had good genes, very good genes. Shortly after appointing his first cabinet, he proclaimed, we have by far the highest IQ of any cabinet ever assembled. In a bizarre speech to employees of the Central Intelligence Agency on the day after his inauguration, Trump sought to allay what he imagined to be doubts about his intellect. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. He frequently felt the need to remind audiences of his college credentials having spent two years at Fordham before transferring to the University of Pennsylvania, 
where he took undergraduate classes at the Wharton School of Finance. He boasted that he went to, quote, the hardest school to get into, the best school in the world, super genius stuff. Campaigning in 2016, he complained that his need constantly to recite and defend his intellectual credentials arose from media bias against conservatives. If I ran as a liberal Democrat, they would say I'm one of the smartest people anywhere in the world. It's true. But when you're a conservative Republican, they try, oh, do they do a number? That's why I always start off, went to Wharton, was a good student, went there, went there, did this, built a fortune. You know, I have to give my, like, credentials all the time because we're a little disadvantaged. Though animated by his own grievances and insecurities, Trump's repeated insistence that he was a smart person, however plaintive and comic, it seemed to his critics, proved to be a political asset. It resonated with the aggrieved working-class supporters who attended his rallies and who, like him, resented the meritocratic hubris of elites. Trump's protestations displayed the humiliation a meritocratic society can inflict. He both reviled elites and craved their respect. At a campaign-style rally in 2017, he lashed out against elites, then claimed to be one himself. Now, you know, I was a good student. I always hear about the elite. You know, the elite? Their elite? I went to better schools than they did. I was a better student than they were. I live in a bigger, more beautiful apartment. And I live in the White House, too, which is really great. I think, you know what? I think we're the elites. They're not the elites. Trump was not the only political figure to display defensiveness in the face of questions about his meritocratic credentials. In 1987, during his first presidential campaign, Joe Biden took umbrage when a voter pressed him to say what law school he attended and where he placed in the class. I think I probably have a much higher IQ than you do, I suspect. This is Biden. I went to law school on a full academic scholarship, the only one in my class to have a full academic scholarship, and in fact ended up in the top half of my class. I was the outstanding student in the political science department at the end of my year. I graduated with three degrees from undergraduate school and 165 credits, only needed 123 credits. And I'd be delighted to sit down and compare my IQ to yours. Fact-checking found that Biden's reply was replete with exaggeration. He had received a partial scholarship based on financial need, finished toward the bottom of his class, received one undergraduate degree, not three, though he did have a double major, and so on. What is striking, however, is not that politicians inflate their college credentials, 
but that they feel the need to do so. Even those whose meritocratic credentials are not in doubt sometimes invoke them with defensive self-righteousness. Consider the 2018 Senate confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh, nominated by Trump and eventually confirmed for a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. Late in the proceedings, Kavanaugh's confirmation was placed in doubt when a woman accused him of having sexually assaulted her at a party during their high school years. When senators questioned him about the alleged drunken sexual assault, Kavanaugh not only denied the charge, but offered an oddly incongruous meritocratic defense, describing how hard he had worked during high school and how he had won admission to Yale College and later Yale Law School. Asked about apparent references in his high school yearbook to drinking and sexual exploits, he replied, I was at the top of my class academically, busted my butt in school, captain of the varsity basketball team, got into Yale College. When I got into Yale College, got into Yale Law School. That's the number one law school in the country. I had no connections there. I got there by busting my tail in college. Kavanaugh's meritocratic credentials had not been challenged. It is hard to fathom their relevance to the question of whether, when he was 18 years old, he had become drunk and sexually assaulted a young woman at a party. But by 2018, credentialism had become so pervasive a basis of judgment that it served as a kind of all-purpose rhetoric of credibility, deployed in moral and political combat far beyond the campus gates. The weaponization of college credentials shows how merit can become a kind of tyranny. It is worth reconstructing how it came about. The age of globalization brought vast inequalities and stagnant wages for the working class. In the U.S., the richest 10% captured most of the gains, and the bottom half, virtually none. Liberal and progressive parties of the 1990s and 2000s did not address this inequality directly by seeking structural reform of the economy. Instead, they embraced a market-driven globalization and addressed the uneven benefits it bestowed by seeking a fuller equality of opportunity. This was the point of the rhetoric of rising. If barriers to achievement could be dismantled, then everyone would have an equal chance to succeed. Regardless of race or class or gender, people could rise as far as their talent and effort would take them. And if opportunities were truly equal, then those who rose highest could be said to deserve their success and the rewards it brings. This was the meritocratic promise. It was not a promise of greater equality, but instead a promise of greater and fairer mobility. It accepted that the rungs on the income ladder were growing farther apart, 
and offered simply to help people compete more fairly to clamor up the rungs. It is easy to see why some would find this political project less than inspiring, especially for political parties once dedicated to more demanding visions of justice and the common good. But put aside for the moment the question of whether the meritocratic ideal is an adequate basis for a just society and consider the attitudes towards success and failure it promotes. Education as the answer to inequality. Those who embraced the meritocratic project knew that true equality of opportunity required more than rooting out discrimination. It required leveling the playing field so that people from all social and economic backgrounds could equip themselves to compete effectively in a knowledge-based global economy. This led the mainstream parties of the 1990s and 2000s to make education the centerpiece of their response to inequality, stagnant wages, and the loss of manufacturing jobs. Think about every problem, every challenge we face, said George H.W. Bush in 1991. The solution to each starts with education. In Britain, Tony Blair, setting out his centrist, reform-minded agenda for the Labour Party in 1996, put it emphatically, ask me for my three main priorities for government, and I tell you, education, education, and education. Bill Clinton expressed the importance of education and its connection to jobs with a rhyming couplet, what you can earn depends on what you can learn. In the new era of global competition, he argued, workers without a college degree would struggle to find good jobs at decent wages. We think everybody ought to be able to go to college because what you can earn depends on what you can learn. Clinton invoked this couplet in speeches and remarks more than 30 times during his presidency. It reflected the common sense of the time and had bipartisan appeal. Senator John McCain, a Republican, often used it during his 2008 presidential campaign. Barack Obama also saw higher education as the solution to the economic woes of American workers. In the old days, he told an audience at a technology college in Brooklyn, if you were willing to work hard, you didn't necessarily need a great education. If you'd just gone to high school, you might get a job at a factory or in the garment district. Or you might be able to just get a job that allowed you to earn your wages, keep pace with people who had a chance to go to college. But those days are over, and those days are not coming back. We live in a 21st century global economy. And in a global economy, jobs can go anywhere. Companies, they're looking for the best educated people wherever they live. Now, you've got billions of people from Beijing to Bangalore to Moscow, 
all of whom are competing with you directly. If you don't have a good education, then it's going to be hard for you to find a job that pays a living wage. After delivering this hard news about global competition, Obama assured his audience that more education was the solution. And he concluded with an upbeat rendition of the rhetoric of rising. He would keep fighting to make sure that no matter who you are, where you come from, what you look like, this country will always be a place where you can make it if you try. Here then was the basic argument of liberal and progressive politics in the decades leading up to Brexit, Trump, and the populist revolt. The global economy, as if a fact of nature, had somehow come upon us and was here to stay. The central political question was not how to reconfigure it, but how to adapt to it, and how to alleviate its devastating effect on the wages and job prospects of workers outside the charmed circle of the elite professions. The answer? Improve the educational credentials of workers so that they too could compete and win in the global economy. If equality of opportunity was the primary moral and political project, expanding access to higher education was the overriding policy imperative. Toward the end of the Clinton-Obama era, some commentators generally sympathetic to the Democratic Party questioned the meritocratic liberalism that had come to define it. Embracing globalization, valorizing a college degree, and believing that the talented and well-credentialed deserved to land on top. Christopher Hayes, an author and host of an MSNBC television program, observed that in recent years, the left had had its greatest successes on issues that involved making the meritocracy more meritocratic, such as combating racial discrimination, including women in higher education, and advancing gay rights. But it had failed in areas that fall outside meritocracy's purview, such as mitigating rising income inequality. Here's how he put it. Within the framework of a system that seeks equal opportunity rather than any semblance of equality in outcomes, it is inevitable that the education system will be asked to do the heavy lifting. As the inequality steadily increases, we ask more and more of the educational system looking for it to expiate the society's other sins. Thomas Frank, an author with populist sensibilities, criticized liberals' focus on education as the remedy for inequality. To the liberal class, every big economic problem is really an education problem, he wrote. A failure of the losers to learn the right skills and get the credentials everyone knows you'll need in the society of the future. Frank found this response to inequality implausible and self-serving. 
It isn't really an answer at all, he wrote. It's a moral judgment handed down by the successful from the vantage of their own success. The professional class is defined by its educational attainment. And every time they tell the country that what it needs is more schooling, they are saying inequality is not a failure of the system. It is a failure of you. Frank argued that all the education talk distracted Democrats from thinking clearly about the policies that had led to inequality, noting that productivity rose during the 1980s and 90s, but that wages did not. He doubted that inequality was due mainly to a failure of education. The real problem, he wrote, was one of inadequate worker power, not inadequate worker smarts. The people who produced were losing their ability to demand a share in what they made. The people who owned were taking more and more. Failing to see this led Democrats to ignore what was happening in the real economy, from monopoly power to financialization to labor management relations, in favor of a moral fantasy that required them to confront no one. Frank's mention of a moral judgment handed down by the successful touched on something important. Encouraging more people to go to college is a good thing. Making college more accessible to those of modest means is even better. But as a solution to inequality and the plight of workers who lost out in the decades of globalization, the single-minded focus on education had a damaging side effect, eroding the social esteem accorded those who had not gone to college. It did so in two ways, both having to do with attitudes corrosive of the dignity of work and of the working class. First, most Americans do not have a college degree. For those who go about their day in the company of the managerial professional classes. This can come as a surprise. Although graduation rates have climbed in recent decades, only about one in three American adults has graduated from a four-year college. When meritocratic elites tie success and failure so closely to one's ability to earn a college degree, they implicitly blame those without one for the harsh conditions they encounter in the global economy. They also absolve themselves of responsibility for promoting economic policies that heighten the wage premium a college degree commands. Second, by telling workers that their inadequate education is to blame for their troubles, meritocrats moralize success and failure and unwittingly promote credentialism and insidious prejudice against those who have not been to college. The credentialist prejudice is a symptom of meritocratic hubris. As meritocratic assumptions tightened their hold in recent decades, elites fell into the habit of looking down on those who do not rise. The constant call for working people to improve their condition by getting a college degree, however well-intentioned, eventually valorizes credentialism 
and undermines social recognition and esteem for those who lack the credentials the system rewards. The best and the brightest. Obama was emblematic of the meritocratic thinking that by the early 2000s had become the common sense of the professional classes. As Jonathan Alter writes, at some level, Obama bought into the idea that top drawer professionals had gone through a fair sorting process, the same process that had propelled him and Michelle to the Ivy League, and were therefore in some way deserving of their elevated status. In a book chronicling the first year of Obama's presidency, Alter observed that a quarter of his appointees had some connection as alumni or faculty to Harvard, and more than 90% of early appointees had advanced degrees. Alter puts it this way, Obama's faith lay in cream rising to the top. Because he himself was a product of the great American post-war meritocracy, he could never fully escape seeing the world from the status ladder he had ascended. Obama's fondness for the highly credentialed persisted throughout his presidency. By the middle of his second term, two-thirds of his cabinet-rank appointees had attended an Ivy League college, and 13 of 21 had attended Harvard or Yale. All but three held advanced degrees. Having well-educated people run the government is generally desirable, provided they possess sound judgment and a sympathetic understanding of working people's lives, what Aristotle called practical wisdom and civic virtue. But history shows little connection between prestigious academic credentials and either practical wisdom or an instinct for the common good in the here and now. One of the most ruinous examples of credentialism gone awry is described in David Halberstam's classic book, The Best and the Brightest. It shows how John F. Kennedy assembled a team with glittering credentials who, for all their technocratic brilliance, led the United States into the folly of the Vietnam War. Alter saw a similarity between Kennedy's team and Obama's who shared the Ivy League as well as a certain arrogance and a detachment from the everyday lives of most Americans. As things turned out, Obama's economic advisors contributed to a folly of their own. Less lethal than Vietnam, but consequential nonetheless for the shape of American politics, insisting on a Wall Street-friendly response to the financial crisis. They bailed out the banks without holding them to account, discredited the Democratic Party in the eyes of many working people, and helped pave the way to Trump. This failure of political judgment was not unrelated to meritocratic hubris. Frank describes a widely shared view among Democrats that Wall Street is a place of enormous meritocratic prestige, 
on a level equivalent to a high-end graduate school. Here's how he puts it. Obama deferred to Wall Street in so many ways because investment banking signifies professional status like almost nothing else for the kind of achievement-conscious people who filled the administration. Investment bankers were more than friends. They were fellow professionals, people of subtle minds, sophisticated jargon, and extraordinary innovativeness. Frank argues that this reflexive respect for investment bankers blinded the Democrats to the problems of mega banks, to the need for structural change, and to the epidemic of fraud that overswept the business. He cites Neil Borofsky, a former federal prosecutor who served as the government watchdog for the bank bailout, and who wrote a scathing book about what he saw. The book's title and subtitle convey his conclusion, Bailout, an inside account of how Washington abandoned Main Street while rescuing Wall Street. While it is true that Wall Street executives had been generous donors to Obama's campaign, his administration's gentle treatment of the financial industry was not only political payback. Borofsky suggests a further meritocratic explanation. The belief among policymakers that well-credentialed, sophisticated investment bankers deserved the massive amounts they were paid. The Wall Street fiction that certain financial executives were preternaturally gifted supermen who deserved every penny of their staggering paychecks and bonuses was firmly ingrained in Treasury's psyche, Barofsky writes. No matter that the financial crisis had demonstrated just how unremarkable the work of those executives had turned out to be, that belief system endured at Treasury across administrations. If a Wall Street executive was contracted to receive a 6.4 million retention bonus, the assumption was that he must be worth it. Beyond the role it may have played in policymaking, credentialism seeped into Democrats' mode of expression in the 1990s and 2000s and subtly reshaped the terms of public discourse. In every age, politicians and opinion makers, publicists and advertisers, reach for a language of judgment and evaluation they hope will persuade. Such rhetoric typically draws upon evaluative contrasts, just versus unjust, free versus unfree, progressive versus reactionary, strong versus weak, open versus closed. In recent decades, as meritocratic modes of thinking have gained ascendance, the reigning evaluative contrast has become smart versus dumb. Until recently, the adjective smart mainly described persons. In American English, to call someone smart is to praise his or her intelligence. In British English, clever conveys this meaning. As the digital age dawned, smart came to describe things, high-tech devices and machines, 
such as smart cars, smart phones, smart bombs, smart thermostats, smart toasters, and so on. But the digital age arrived in tandem with the age of meritocracy. It is therefore not surprising that smart also came to describe ways of governing. The smart thing to do. Prior to the 1980s, U.S. presidents rarely used the word smart. And when they did, it was typically in the traditional sense, the American people are smart. George H.W. Bush began using the word in its new digital age sense. He spoke of smart cars, smart freeways, smart weapons, smart schools. The use of smart in presidential rhetoric exploded with Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, each of whom used it more than 450 times. Obama used it more than 900 times. The same trend can be seen in general parlance. In books, the use of smart climbed steadily from 1975 to 2008, increasing nearly threefold. The use of stupid doubled. In the New York Times, the appearance of smart increased fourfold from 1980 to 2000, and by 2018, it nearly doubled again. As a measure of meritocracy's hold on the public mind, the growing frequency of smart is less revealing than its changing meaning. Not only did smart refer to digital systems and devices, it increasingly became a general term of praise and a way of arguing for one policy rather than another. As an evaluative contrast, smart versus dumb began to displace ethical or ideological contrasts, such as just versus unjust or right versus wrong. Both Clinton and Obama frequently argued that their favored policy was not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. This rhetorical tick suggested that in a meritocratic age, being smart carried more persuasive heft than being right. Fighting AIDS worldwide is not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing, Clinton assured the American public. In our tightly connected world, infectious disease anywhere is a threat to public health everywhere. Adding a prescription drug benefit to Medicare was not just the right thing to do, Medically speaking, it's the smart thing to do. Raising the minimum wage was not only the right thing to do for working families, it's the smart thing to do for our economy. Employing the same idiom, Obama declared that empowering women isn't just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do when women succeed Nations are more safe, more secure, and more prosperous. Speaking before the UN General Assembly, he said the same of development aid. It's not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. Obama invoked this double-barreled appeal to ethics and smarts 
on issues ranging from immigration reform to extending unemployment insurance. The smart thing to do always pointed to a prudential or self-interested reason that did not depend on moral considerations. Clinton and Obama were, of course, not the first political leaders to buttress moral arguments with prudential ones. What is striking is that the prudential considerations were now a matter of being smart. Defending one's policies as smart rather than dumb is closely akin to credentialist ways of talking about people when Hillary Clinton, newly appointed as Secretary of State, announced several of her State Department deputies. She made this connection explicit. Quote, In my testimony before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I spoke about the use of smart power. At the heart of smart power are smart people, and these talented individuals are among the smartest I know. At a time of intense partisanship, the language of smart and dumb has an understandable appeal. It seems to offer a refuge from ideological combat, a mode of political argument that steps back from moral controversy and seeks consensus on the basis of what's smart, sensible, prudent. Obama was drawn to this seemingly nonpartisan, meritocratic way of thinking and speaking on issues related to racial, ethnic, and gender equality. Obama made eloquent, full-throated moral arguments. But when it came to foreign affairs or economic policy, he instinctively reached for the non-ideological language of smart versus dumb. The most important speech of his early political career came in 2002, when, as a state senator in Illinois, he declared his opposition to the Iraq War. It was this stance that, six years later, would distinguish him from Hillary Clinton and help propel him to his party's nomination for president. Even before ascending the national political stage, Obama saw political choices in terms of smart versus dumb. I don't oppose all wars, the young state senator told the anti-war rally in Chicago. What I am opposed to is a dumb war. When, during his second term as president, Obama was asked to articulate his foreign policy doctrine, he summed it up in a single blunt sentence. Don't do stupid shit. When Obama found himself at loggerheads with Republicans in 2013 over how to reduce the budget deficit while avoiding automatic across-the-board spending cuts, he again resorted to the language of smart versus dumb. There is a sensible way of doing things and there is a dumb way of doing things, he told shipbuilders in Virginia. At a press conference a few days later, he said, we shouldn't be making a series of dumb, arbitrary cuts. Instead, he favored smart spending cuts and smart entitlement reform. 
Obama maintained that the smart spending cuts and smart revenue-raising measures he favored were sensible, nonpartisan measures that should be exempt from ideological wrangling. I don't think that is partisan, he said. It's the kind of approach that I've proposed for two years. It's what I ran on last year. He did not explain how a policy that by his own account he ran on during his presidential campaign could be considered nonpartisan. Elites looking down. Elites seemed oblivious, not only to the partisan character of their smart policies, but also to the hubristic attitudes their persistent talk of smart and dumb expressed. By 2016, many working people chafed under the sense that well-schooled elites looked down on them with condescension. This complaint, which burst forth in the populist backlash against elites, was not without warrant. Survey research bears out what many working-class voters sensed. At a time when racism and sexism are out of favor, discredited, though not eliminated, credentialism is the last acceptable prejudice. In the United States and Europe, disdain for the poorly educated is more pronounced, or at least more readily acknowledged, than prejudice against other disfavored groups. In a series of surveys conducted in the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, and Belgium, a team of social psychologists found that college-educated respondents have more bias against less educated people than they do against other disfavored groups. The researchers surveyed the attitudes of well-educated Europeans toward a range of people who are typically victims of discrimination. Muslims, people of Turkish descent living in Western Europe, people who are poor, obese, blind, and less educated. They found that the poorly educated were disliked most of all. In a similar study conducted in the United States, the researchers offered a revised list of disfavored groups, including African Americans, the working class, and people who are poor, obese, and less educated. The American respondents also ranked the less educated at the bottom. Beyond showing the disparaging views that college-educated elites have of less-educated people, the authors of the study offer several intriguing conclusions. First, they challenge the familiar notion that educated elites are morally more enlightened than people with less education and therefore more tolerant. The authors conclude that well-educated elites are no less biased than less-educated folk it is rather that their targets of prejudice are different. Moreover, the elites are unembarrassed by their prejudice. They may denounce racism and sexism, but are unapologetic about their negative attitudes toward the less educated. Second, 
the reason for this lack of embarrassment relates to the meritocratic emphasis on individual responsibility. Elites dislike those with lesser educations more than they dislike poor people or members of the working class because they consider poverty and class status to be at least in part due to factors beyond one's control. By contrast, they consider low educational achievement to represent a failure of individual effort and therefore the fault of those who do not make it to college. Compared to the working class, the researchers write, the less educated were perceived to be more responsible and more blameworthy. They elicited more anger and they were liked less. Third, this adverse judgment of the less educated is not unique to elites. It is shared by the less educated respondents themselves. This shows how deeply the meritocratic view of achievement has penetrated social life and how demoralizing it can be for those who do not go to college. There are no indications, the study concludes, that less educated people resist the negative attributions made about them. To the contrary, they even seem to internalize these adverse judgments. The less educated are seen as responsible and blameworthy for their situation, even by the less educated themselves. Finally, the authors suggest that the relentless emphasis in a meritocratic society on the importance of going to college reinforces the social stigma against those who lack a college degree. Quote, the suggestion that education is a universal social problem solver may increase the risk that groups with low levels of socioeconomic status will be especially negatively evaluated while strengthening the ideology of meritocracy. This makes people more willing to accept inequality and more likely to believe that success reflects merit. If education is regarded as an individual's own responsibility, the authors write, then people are likely to be less critical of social inequality that stems from differences in education. If educational outcomes are seen as largely deserved, then their consequences are too. Government by degree. By the 2000s, citizens without a college degree were not only looked down upon in the United States and Western Europe, they were virtually absent from elective office. In the U.S. Congress, 95% of House members and 100% of senators are college graduates. This means that the credentialed few govern the uncredentialed many. Although about two-thirds of American adults do not have a college degree, only a tiny handful are members of Congress. It has not always been this way, although the well-educated have always been disproportionately represented in Congress. As recently as the early 1960s, about one-fourth of senators 
and one-fourth of members of the House were elected despite lacking a college degree. Over the past half-decade, Congress has become more diverse with regard to race, ethnicity, and gender, but less diverse with regard to educational credentials and class. One consequence of the diploma divide is that very few members of the working class ever make it to elective office. In the U.S., about half of the labor force is employed in working class jobs, defined as manual labor, service industry, and clerical jobs. But fewer than 2% of the members of Congress worked in such jobs before their election. In state legislatures, only 3% come from working class backgrounds. Credentialism is also changing the face of representative government in Britain and Europe. In Britain, as in the U.S., those with diplomas govern those without. In the United Kingdom as a whole, about 70% do not have a university degree. In Parliament, only 12% do not. Nearly 9 of 10 MPs have degrees. One-fourth of MPs went to Oxford or Cambridge. Over the past four decades, Britain's Labour Party has undergone an especially striking shift in the educational and class background of its MPs. In 1979, 41% of Labour MPs were elected to Parliament without having received a university degree. By 2017, only 16% managed to do so. The rising tide of credentialism was accompanied by a precipitous decline in working-class MPs, who now constitute only 4% of the House of Commons. The class composition of the Labour Party, which traditionally represented the working class, underwent the most dramatic change. In 1979, 37% of Labour MPs came from a manual occupation background. By 2015, only 7% did. As Oliver Heath, a British political scientist, observes, such changes in MPs' occupational background have made Parliament much less representative of the broader British population and the Labour Party much less representative of the working class whose interests it was traditionally supposed to represent. The less educated members of society are also disappearing from parliaments throughout Western Europe, where the pattern is similar to the American and British experience. In Germany, France, the Netherlands, and Belgium, representative government has become almost exclusively the preserve of the highly credentialed. Even in rich countries such as these, about 70% of the adult population do not have college degrees, but very few of them find their way into Parliament. In Germany's Bundestag, 83% of MPs are university graduates. Fewer than 2% have the high school vocational track as their highest degree. In France, 
the Netherlands, and Belgium, 82 to 94 percent of representatives in Parliament have university degrees. Among cabinet members in these countries, the educational credentials are even higher. In Angela Merkel's 2013 cabinet, for example, nine of the 15 ministers had PhDs, and all but one of the others had master's degrees. The cachet of a PhD is so considerable in German politics that scandals rage over plagiarism in doctoral dissertations, forcing cabinet ministers to resign. The virtual absence from government of non-college graduates is a development of the meritocratic age. But it is not unprecedented. It is more than a little troubling to notice that this is a reversion to the way things were before most working people had the right to vote. The highly credentialed profile of today's European parliaments resembles the one that prevailed in the late 19th century when property qualifications limited suffrage. In Germany, France, the Netherlands, and Belgium, most members of mid to late 19th century parliaments had college degrees. This changed in the 20th century when universal suffrage and the rise of socialist and social democratic parties democratized the composition of parliaments. From the 1920s to the 1950s, MPs without college degrees served in substantial numbers, accounting for one-third to one-half of legislators. Beginning in the 1960s, the portion of degree holders began to climb, and by the 2000s, non-college graduates were as rare in national legislatures as they were in the days of aristocrats and landed gentry. Some might argue that government by well-educated university graduates is something to welcome, not regret. Surely we want highly qualified engineers to build our bridges and well-trained doctors to perform our appendectomies. So why not seek elected representatives who attended the best universities? Aren't highly educated leaders more likely than those with less distinguished credentials to give us sound public policies and reasoned political discourse? No, not necessarily. Even a cursory look at the parlous state of political discourse in Congress and in the parliaments of Europe should give us pause. Governing well requires practical wisdom and civic virtue, an ability to deliberate about the common good and to pursue it effectively. But neither of these capacities is developed very well in most universities today, even those with the highest reputations. And recent historical experience suggests little correlation between the capacity for political judgment, which involves moral character as well as insight, and the ability to score well on standardized tests and win admissions to elite universities. The notion that 
the best and the brightest are better at governing than their less credentialed fellow citizens is a myth born of meritocratic hubris. Two of the four iconic American presidents on Mount Rushmore, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, lacked a college degree. The last U.S. president without a diploma, Harry S. Truman, is generally ranked among America's best presidents. Franklin D. Roosevelt, a Harvard alumnus himself, conceived and enacted the New Deal with an eclectic team of advisors more capable but far less credentialed than those who served recent Democratic presidents. This is due, at least in part, to the fact that in the 1930s, the economics profession did not exert the hold on Washington policymaking it acquired in recent decades. Thomas Frank describes the varied backgrounds of those who launched the New Deal. Harry Hopkins, Roosevelt's closest confidant, was a social worker from Iowa. Robert Jackson, the U.S. Attorney General, whom Roosevelt appointed to the Supreme Court, was a lawyer who had no law degree. Jesse Jones, who ran Roosevelt's bailout program, was a businessman from Texas with no qualms about putting the nation's most prominent financial institutions into receivership. Mariner Eccles, the visionary whom Roosevelt appointed to run the Federal Reserve, was a small-town banker from Utah with no advanced degrees. Henry Wallace, who was probably the nation's greatest agriculture secretary, studied at Iowa State. The rising credentialism of recent decades has also failed to improve governance in the United Kingdom. Today, only 7% of the British population attends private schools, and fewer than 1% attend Oxford or Cambridge universities. But the governing elites are drawn disproportionately from these places. Nearly two-thirds of Boris Johnson's 2019 cabinet attended private schools, and almost half are Oxbridge graduates. Since World War II, most conservative cabinet ministers and about a third of ministers in labor government have come from private school backgrounds. But one of the most successful British governments since the war was its least credentialed and most broadly representative in class terms. In 1945, Clement Attlee's Labor Party defeated Winston Churchill's Conservatives. Attlee was an Oxford graduate, but only one in four of his cabinet ministers came from private schools, a lower proportion than in any British cabinet since. Seven of his ministers had worked as coal miners. Attlee's highly regarded foreign secretary, Ernest Bevan, who became one of the architects of the post-war world, had left school at the age of 11 and risen through the ranks as a union leader. Herbert Morrison, leader of the House of Commons and deputy prime minister, had left school at 14 and risen to prominence through local government, helping create London's public transport system. 
The health minister, Aniran Bevan, who had left school at 13 and worked as a miner in Wales, led the creation of Britain's National Health Service. Atlee's government considered the most significant reforming administration of 20th century Britain, empowered the working classes, and according to his biographer, set the ethical terms on which Britain's new social contract was founded. Turning Congress and parliaments into the exclusive preserve of the credentialed classes has not made government more effective, but it has made it less representative. It has also alienated working people from mainstream parties, especially those of the center-left, and polarized politics along educational lines. One of the deepest divides in politics today is between those with and those without a college degree. The Diploma Divide In 2016, two-thirds of whites without a college degree voted for Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton won more than 70% of voters with advanced degrees. Electoral studies found that education, not income, best predicted support for Trump. Among voters with similar incomes, those with more education voted for Clinton, while those with less voted for Trump. The diploma divide accounted for the most significant vote swings from the previous presidential election in 48 of the 50 counties with the highest proportion of college graduates, Hillary Clinton actually did better than Barack Obama four years earlier. In 47 of the 50 counties with the lowest proportion of college graduates, she did considerably worse. No wonder Trump proclaimed, celebrating one of his early primary victories, I love the poorly educated. Throughout much of the 20th century, parties of the left attracted those with less education, while parties of the right attracted those with more. In the age of meritocracy, this pattern has been reversed. Today, people with more education vote for left-of-center parties, and those with less support parties of the right. The French economist Thomas Piketty has shown that this reversal has unfolded in striking parallel in the U.S., the U.K., and France. From the 1940s to the 1970s, those without a university degree voted reliably for the Democratic Party in the United States, the Labour Party in Britain, and the various left-of-center parties in France. During the 1980s and 1990s, the diploma gap narrowed considerably, and by the 2000s and 2010s, parties of the left had lost the support of voters without a college education. The reversal is complicated by the fact that wealthy voters still generally support parties of the right, even as the majority of highly educated voters favor the center-left. And in the United States, 
African-American, Latino, and Asian-American voters of all educational backgrounds continue to support the Democratic Party. But by the 2010s, education had become the most decisive political divide, and parties that once represented workers increasingly represented meritocratic elites. In the United States, as the Democratic Party came to be identified with the professional classes, white voters without a college education turned away from it. This trend continued after the election of Trump. In the 2018 congressional elections, 61% of non-college educated white voters supported Republicans and only 37% voted for Democrats. The deepening diploma divide can also be seen by looking at the 30 congressional districts with the highest proportion of college graduates. In 1992, when Bill Clinton was elected president, these districts divided evenly. Half elected Democrats to Congress and half elected Republicans. In 2018, Democrats won all but three of them. In the United Kingdom, the Labour Party's base of support has seen a similar shift. As recently as the early 1980s, about one-third of Labour Party MPs came from working-class backgrounds. By 2010, fewer than one in ten did. According to Oliver Heath, the decline of working-class MPs in the Labour Party ranks had a substantial impact on the relative popularity of the party among working-class voters who increasingly viewed the party as ruled by an out-of-touch metropolitan elite. The disaffection was first reflected in declining turnout among less educated voters. Then, in 2016, it found expression in the vote to leave the European Union. Low-income voters were more likely than high-income voters to favor Brexit, but educational differences were more pronounced. Over 70% of voters with no college education voted for Brexit, while over 70% of those with a postgraduate degree voted to remain. The pattern can also be seen in regional voting disparities. Of the 20 local authorities with the lowest percentage of college graduates, 15 voted to leave. Of the 20 most highly educated areas, all voted to remain. In France, despite its different party system, the same educational divide has developed over the past few decades. Since the 1980s, non-university graduates have moved away from the socialists and other left parties, which have become the parties of educational elites. In the 1950s and 60s, left parties were working-class parties. The share of non-graduates voting for the left was about 20 percentage points higher than among university graduates. By the 1980s, the gap had closed and by the 2010s, it had reversed. Now, the share of university graduates voting for the left 
is 10 percentage points higher than the share of non-graduates doing so, a shift of 30 points. Piketty speculates that the transformation of left parties from worker parties into parties of intellectual and professional elites may explain why they have not responded to the rising inequality of recent decades. Meanwhile, those who lack high-powered educational credentials resent the globalization that elites promote and turn to populist, nativist candidates such as Trump in the United States and Marine Le Pen, who leads a nationalist anti-immigrant party in France. In 2017, Emmanuel Macron, a liberal centrist, defeated Le Pen for the presidency of France. Macron's election was hailed by some commentators is a sign that the populist revolt could be quelled by a young, attractive candidate offering a market-friendly globalization program reminiscent of Clinton, Blair, and Obama. Like his meritocratic counterparts in the U.S. and the U.K., he drew his strongest support from voters with university educations and advanced degrees. But Macron's popularity soon faded, and his government was confronted with a series of street protests by citizens who donned the yellow safety vests worn by stranded motorists. The protesters, mainly middle-class residents of areas outside Paris, were angered by an increase in gas taxes, Macron's aloof manner, and economic policies that did little for those left behind by globalization. When, in the midst of the crisis, a senior politician from Macron's party was asked what mistakes by the government had provoked the protests, he replied, we were probably too intelligent, too subtle. The relentless credentialism of our day has driven working-class voters toward populist and nationalist parties and deepened the divide between those with and those without a college degree. It has also led to increasingly partisan views of higher education, the institution most emblematic of the meritocratic project. As recently as 2015, Democrats and Republicans alike said that colleges and universities have a positive effect on the country. This is no longer the case. Today, 59% of Republicans believe that colleges and universities have a negative effect on the way things are going in the country, and only 33% view higher education favorably. By contrast, Democrats overwhelmingly believe 67 to 18% that colleges and universities have a positive effect. One of the casualties of meritocracy's triumph may be the loss of broad public support for higher education. Once widely seen as an engine of opportunity, the university has become, at least for some, a symbol of credentialist privilege and meritocratic hubris. The rhetoric of rising 
with its single-minded focus on education as the answer to inequality, is partly to blame. Building a politics around the idea that a college degree is a condition of dignified work and social esteem has a corrosive effect on democratic life. It devalues the contributions of those without a diploma, fuels prejudice against less educated members of society, effectively excludes most working people from representative government and provokes political backlash. Technocratic talk. Closely connected to these credentialist ills is the technocratic turn of public discourse. The more policymaking is described as a matter of smart versus dumb. The greater the case for having smart people, experts and elites, decide things, rather than allowing citizens to debate and decide what policies to enact. For meritocratic elites, the rhetoric of smart and dumb seems to offer a nonpartisan alternative to moral and ideological disagreement. But such disagreement lies at the heart of democratic politics, too determined an effort to rise above the messy terrain of partisan disagreement can lead to a technocratic public discourse that diverts politics from questions of justice and the common good. Barack Obama is a case in point. When speaking about redeeming the promise of equal rights for all Americans, his rhetoric could soar to heights of eloquence unmatched by any political figure of his day. His amazing grace eulogy in Charleston, South Carolina, honoring the memory of parishioners murdered in church by a hate-filled gunman, was one of the most stirring speeches by an American president in modern times. And yet, when it came to his view of democratic governance, Obama was at heart a technocrat. As this may seem a harsh claim about a popular president, let me explain. To govern a democratic society requires contending with disagreement. Governing in the face of disagreement presupposes a view about how disagreements arise and how they might be overcome in this or that moment for this or that public purpose. Obama believed that the primary source of democratic disagreement is that ordinary citizens lack sufficient information. If lack of information is the problem, the solution is for those with a fuller grasp of the facts to make decisions on behalf of their fellow citizens, or at least to enlighten them, to tell them what they need to know to make sensible decisions of their own. Presidential leadership is less about moral persuasion than about gathering and promulgating facts. Obama articulated this vision of governing with remarkable clarity in a 2007 speech to Google employees early in his campaign for the presidency. One of the things he had learned while traveling the country, he told them, 
is that the American people at their core are a decent people. There's a generosity of spirit there, and there's common sense there, but it's not tapped. The reason? Many people, they're just misinformed, or they are too busy. They're trying to get their kids to school. They're working. They just don't have enough information, or they're not professionals at sorting out all the information that's out there. And so our political process gets skewed. But if you give them good information, their instincts are good and they will make good decisions. And the president has the bully pulpit to give them good information. Ever since Theodore Roosevelt coined the term a century earlier, the bully pulpit has referred to the presidency as a place of moral inspiration and exhortation. Now, the bully pulpit would be a venue for facts and data, for good information. This is the essence of a technocratic conception of politics, and it carries more than a whiff of meritocratic hubris. If the ordinary people who populate the land, however decent, are not professionals at sorting out information, then the true professionals must do the sorting for them and provide them the facts they need. Obama saw this as the way to heal America's skewed political process. The challenge was not to break up the large concentrations of economic power that bore down on the political process, or to awaken in the public a keener sense of the common good. It was to provide better, more accurate information. I'm really looking forward to doing that because I am a big believer in reason and facts and evidence and science and feedback, he told his Google audience. I want to restore that sense of decisions being based on facts to the White House. It might be thought that this statement of technocratic faith was intended mainly to win supporters in the tech industry. But throughout his presidency and since, Obama has been true to this vision of politics. Further examples of this way of thinking highlight the affinity between technocratic politics and neoliberalism. To a far greater extent than previous presidents, Obama drew upon jargon familiar among academic economists and corporate executives. In making his case for healthcare reform, for example, he spoke less about the moral argument for universal coverage than about the need to bend the cost curve, by which he meant reducing the rising cost of health expenditures. Although bending the cost curve did not stir much passion on the hustings, he used some version of this phrase more than 60 times in arguing the merits of his health care plan. In recent years, economists have argued for the use of market incentives to elicit desirable behavior. This emphasis on incentives has become so widespread that it has given rise to a new verb, incentivize, 
Like many social scientists, management consultants, and business executives of the early 21st century, Obama embraced incentivize as a way of describing how market mechanisms could achieve desired outcomes. He offered policies to incentivize technological development, small business hiring, clean energy development, improved water management, good cybersecurity practices, weatherization programs, healthier nutrition, efficient healthcare delivery, positive school climates, responsible business conduct, and a host of other goals. Incentivizing was a technocratic concept that fit well with Obama's instinct for avoiding partisan or ideological wrangling. It deployed a financial inducement to bring about a public purpose, and so seemed to strike a comfortable middle ground between a government mandate and an unfettered market choice. Where previous presidents had scarcely used the word, Obama spoke of incentivizing this or that behavior on more than 100 occasions. More than any other aspect of his political rhetoric, Obama's constant talk of smart policies highlighted the connection between technocracy and meritocracy. For Obama, smart was the ultimate term of praise. Smart diplomacy, smart foreign policy, smart regulations, smart growth, smart spending cuts, smart investments in education, smart immigration policies, smart infrastructure projects, smart law enforcement, smart government, smart trade policy, smart energy policy, smart climate policy, smart entitlement reform, smart market reforms, smart environmental regulations, smart counterterrorism policy, climate smart agriculture, smart development, smart market-oriented innovation, and above all, smart grids. During his presidency, Obama spoke in praise of smart grids or smart grid technologies on more than 100 occasions. Overall, he used the adjective smart in connection with policies and programs more than 900 times. One of the defects of the technocratic approach to politics is that it places decision-making in the hands of elites and so disempowers ordinary citizens. Another is that it abandons the project of political persuasion, incentivizing people to act responsibly, conserve energy, or to watch their weight, or to observe ethical business practices, is not only an alternative to coercing them, it is also an alternative to persuading them. Technocracy versus Democracy The ideologically evasive, economistic talk emanating from meritocratic elites has coincided with the time when public discourse is increasingly rude and shrill, with partisans shouting and tweeting past one another. What the technocratic discourse 
and the shouting matches have in common is a failure to engage in a substantive way with the moral convictions that animate democratic citizens. Neither cultivates the habit of reasoning together about competing conceptions of justice and the common good. The populist upheavals of 2016, the Brexit vote in Britain and the election of Trump in the United States, repudiated meritocratic elites and the neoliberal technocratic approach to politics. Replying to economists' predictions that leaving the European Union would bring economic hardship to the United Kingdom, a leading Brexit proponent replied, the people in this country have had enough of experts. For his part, Obama struggled to make sense of the political earthquake that occurred at the end of his presidency. In 2018, two years after Trump was elected to succeed him, Obama conceded that proponents of globalization, quote, did not adapt quickly enough to the fact that there were people being left behind. The Washington consensus got a little too comfortable. Particularly after the Cold War, you had this period of great smugness on the part of America and American elites thinking we got all this figured out. But Obama's primary diagnosis of polarized politics in the age of Trump had to do with the public's inability to agree on basic facts. The reason we are seeing so much gridlock and venom and polarization in our politics, he said, is partly because we don't have a common baseline of facts and information. Those who watched Fox News and those who read the New York Times inhabited entirely different realities with not just different opinions, but different facts. It's like epistemological, he said. He offered a vivid illustration of what he saw as clashing realities. Here's how he put it. The biggest challenge we're going to have over the next 10, 15, 20 years is to return to a civic conversation in which if I say this is a chair, we agree this is a chair. Now, we can disagree on whether it's a nice chair or whether we should replace the chair, whether you want to move it over there. But you can't say it's an elephant. Of course, the factual disputes that figure in political debate are not as simple as describing a piece of furniture. But the elephant in the room was climate change. What Obama meant is that it is hard to have a reasoned debate about climate change with people who deny its existence or the human role in bringing it about. Obama surely had in mind that his successor, abetted by climate change deniers, had withdrawn the United States from the Paris Climate Accord that he, Obama, had signed. He attributed this not only to ideological disagreement, but to a rejection of science by Trump and his Republican supporters. In fact, the slogan, I believe in science, 
has become a rallying cry for Democrats. Hillary Clinton proclaimed it in her speech accepting the nomination in 2016. Obama used it as president. And a number of candidates seeking the 2020 presidential nomination made it a refrain on the campaign trail. That the slogan implicitly relegates science to the realm of faith seems not to have diminished its popularity. In support of his long-held belief in the primacy of facts, Obama was fond of quoting Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who once told an obdurate opponent, you are entitled to your own opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts. In telling the story, Obama sometimes added that Moynihan was very smart and that his opponent wasn't as smart. But attributing political disagreement to a simple refusal to face facts or accept science misunderstands the interplay of facts and opinion in political persuasion. The idea that we should all agree on the facts as a pre-political baseline and then proceed to debate our opinions and convictions is a technocratic conceit. Political debate is often about how to identify and characterize the facts relevant to the controversy in question. Whoever succeeds in framing the facts is already a long way to winning the argument. Moynihan to the contrary, our opinions direct our perceptions. They do not arrive on the scene only after the facts are cut and dried. Debating climate change. If the primary source of opposition to action on climate change were a lack of information or a refusal to accept science, one would expect opposition to be stronger among those with less education and scientific knowledge. But this is not the case. Studies of public opinion show that the more people know about science, the more polarized are their views on climate change. Republicans are more skeptical than Democrats about global warming, and the partisan divide increases with education. Among Republicans with a high school education or less, 57% believe global warming is generally exaggerated. Among Republicans who are college graduates, 74% think so. Among Democrats, more education leads to greater concern with climate change. Of Democrats with a high school education or less, 27% consider global warming exaggerated. Of Democrats with college degrees, only 15% think so. The partisan gap in climate change concern is thus almost twice as large among those with college degrees as among those with a high school education. The same pattern holds true of beliefs about the human role in bringing about climate change. Asked whether global warming is caused by natural changes in the environment, 
Most Republicans say yes and most Democrats say no. But the partisan gap among college graduates is much greater than among those with less education. More detailed studies have found that political polarization on climate change tracks not only general levels of education, but also scientific knowledge. People with greater scientific knowledge, as measured by science courses taken and tests of scientific literacy, are more likely than those who know less about science to adhere to their party's views on climate change. These findings challenge the idea that those unwilling to support measures to alleviate climate change are simply ill-informed about science. The partisan divide on climate change is not mainly about facts and information, but about politics. It is a mistake to assume that the more people know about science, the more likely they are to converge on measures to combat climate change. The technocrats' belief that if only we could agree on the facts, we could then have a reasoned debate about policy, misconceives the project of political persuasion. Speaking in 2018 at MIT, Obama imagined the rational debate the country could have about climate change if only everyone agreed on the basic facts. You and I can have an argument about climate change in which you conclude we're not going to stop the Chinese and the Indians from burning a bunch of coal. It's gone on for a pretty long time. We're just going to have to adapt and maybe we'll invent some new energy source in the nick of time, and that's why I'm opposed to the Paris Accords. I'll come back and say, well, no, it turns out if we just invest in some smart technology and we create a smart regulatory framework that incentivizes investment in clean energy, we can actually solve this problem now, and if we don't, it's going to be a catastrophe. Obama wished we could have a wholesome debate such as this. And he lamented that the climate change deniers had made it impossible. But such a debate, even if possible, would be an impoverished mode of political argument. It assumes that our only choice is between resignation and imprudence on the one hand and a value-neutral technocratic fix on the other. But this misses the deeper moral and political considerations that underlie the climate change controversy. The appeal of the technocratic position, but also its weakness, is its seemingly frictionless value neutrality. Talk of smart technology and smart regulatory frameworks glides over the moral and political questions that make climate change a daunting and difficult issue. What would it take to counter the outsized influence of the fossil fuel industry on democratic politics? Should we reconsider the consumerist attitudes 
that lead us to treat nature instrumentally as a dumping ground for what Pope Francis has called our throwaway culture. And what about those who oppose government action to reduce carbon emissions? Not because they reject science, but because they do not trust government to act in their interest, especially in a large-scale reconfiguration of the economy, and do not trust the technocratic elites who would design and implement this reconfiguration. These are not scientific questions to be answered by experts. They are questions about power, morality, authority, and trust, which is to say they are questions for democratic citizens. One of the failures of the well-credentialed meritocratic elites who have governed for the past four decades is that they have not done very well at putting questions such as these at the heart of political debate. Now, as we find ourselves wondering whether democratic norms will survive, complaining about the hubris of meritocratic elites and the narrowness of their technocratic vision may seem trifling. But theirs was the politics that led to this moment, that produced the discontent that populist authoritarians exploit, facing up to the failures of meritocracy and technocracy is an indispensable step toward addressing that discontent and reimagining a politics of the common good. <laughs>